The death toll in Milwaukee's mass murder is estimated at 17 tonight. Police have arrested 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, who lives in the apartment. The street in front of the building has been packed for hours with people, obviously curious to see where the grisly murders occurred. The day that the case broke with Jeffrey Dahmer, July 23rd, 1991, there was a lot of media corners. It was a lot of police over there. Somebody just came to me and showed me a picture of a head detached. I knew instantly that that's the boy who I had in my arms. That's how I found out what happened to him. It could have been prevented. It was just, it shouldn't have happened like that. It just hurts my soul. Remember that first visit that I had with you at the jail? Yeah. What kind of thoughts were going through your mind? Oh, I was, I was uh, uh, so stunned that it had all happened that uh, I didn't want to see anybody. Mm -hmm. Didn't know how the reaction would be. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking about uh, me or Grandma or anything? Everybody, yeah. You, Grandma. Family members found bones in the trash and a vat of foul-smelling chemicals containing bones and a slimy residue. Three victims apparently died in Dahmer's grandmother's house in West Allis. Dahmer claims the killings took place while his grandmother was away or asleep. I'm trying to find clues uh, how this came about. I, I was so wrapped up in, in what I was doing. Just a, a real obsession. This is the front of the house. It was built in 1939, right? And there were hardly any uh, houses around at that time. We're down in Catherine Dahmer's basement right now. And this is the cat that Jeff loves very much. And Jody likes Jeff very much. They cuddle together on the living room floor upstairs. She's always so happy to see him when he comes down. Mm -hmm. It's the late 80s. Lionel Dahmer decides that it would be a good idea for Jeffrey to go live with his grandmother, Lionel's mother, in West Dallas, Wisconsin, which is a small suburb of Milwaukee. Lionel thinks that the biggest problem we have here is that his son is having fantasies about men and might have pornography. Lionel is thinking, if I can have him around someone stable, then perhaps he'll get on a better path. But years later, when Dahmer was sent to prison, he tells his father about the things he did. One thing I wanted to share with you. Mm -hmm. Remember when you visited the uh, uh, grandma? Uh, remember that uh, 
one by one square foot box. It was wooden, but it had a metal covering. And uh, and you you were very insistent that I that I open that up because you thought I had pornography magazines. Yeah, that's right, I did. And uh, I never thought anything more than that. Lionel's now finding out the really dark, dark truth of his son. I was arguing with you, I was just because I didn't want to open up that case. Oh, I see. Yeah, we almost came to blows. So I went out the door, and I came back in about two minutes later, uh, apologizing and everything, and you were on your way down to the basement to uh, break the locks open on the case. Jeffrey Dahmer was frequenting the gay bars and the bathhouses, bringing men back with him, and then killing them. You know what was in it, don't you? No. The uh, mollified head and the genitals of uh, the last victim at the, the Westphalus location. Lionel had no idea. Why would anybody have any idea of the horror that Jeffrey Dahmer was acting out in his grandmother's basement? And we're coming upstairs from the basement. I'm going to go in, in the backyard through the back door. Okay. Walking over here on the side. See all the bars on the windows down there? Jeff and I put all those bars in to keep Raven more secure. My name is Ron Flowers. I had an encounter with Jeffrey Dahmer around April of 1988. He tried to kill me. It was a regular night out at 219. My life was real compartmentalized back then. I was not openly gay. In 219, it was a safe place because that's where all of my friends were and you didn't have to deal with other folks who were either racist or anti-gay. Somewhere between 12 and 1, I left. I went across the street to the parking lot where my car was and I couldn't get the car to start because the battery had died. So this person who introduced himself as Jeff told me that we could take a cab back to his place and then he would get his car and come back and give me a jump so I could be on my way. In the cab, he seemed a little odd. He had like a monotone voice. He was nervous, extremely nervous, when there was supposedly no reason for him to be nervous. I, I don't know, I just didn't trust him. We went in the house. He said, I'll take you back, but uh, first I want to make, make some coffee. And then I heard someone say, Jeff, is that you? He jumped up really quick, 
And he said, yeah, it's me, Grandma. I'm just making myself something to eat. He had never mentioned um, that he lived with a grandmother or anybody else. He looked really nervous. He was uh, shaking. He does this little funny thing with his lip. It's like a nervous tick where he kind of pops his lip. I was trying to get out of there, uh, and I drank the coffee. I drank it really quick, and I could see him kind of relaxing. And I, I remember lifting my head up like this, looking straight up. And then I, I, I know exactly what I said, because I remember it was like, oh, fuck, pardon my language. And then I just remember going forward. And the last thing I saw was his shoes before I hit the floor. I was in that house for four days. So a lot of it I had to piece together. Um, and it, it took me a little while to piece together, so... Um, I just remember fear, paralyzing fear. I remember fighting with someone in the basement. And I also remember passing out again, and that happened a few times. I remember one time that I woke up and I could tell from my peripheral vision that there was a light source behind me, but it was going up the stairs. And then I turned and ran towards the light source. I remember getting to the top of the stairs with my hand on the doorknob. And I felt a hand grab me by the ankle and pull me back down. my head bouncing. I thought that I was going to die. Jeffrey Dahmer lived with his grandma, and, and so while he was living there, he had killed three victims in the basement, disposed of some of those bodies uh, totally, saved some parts of other victims. When Flowers was in the basement, Grandma comes down and interrupts, and Dahmer and says, oh boy, I better not kill this guy. I gotta get him out of the house now. My next memory was him trying to strangle me. I was at another location, and I don't know how he got me out of the house. And my theory is that his grandmother saw me there multiple times. Um, so he wasn't able to kill me there. Um, so he had to take me somewhere else to do it. I was in a field. Just as I opened my eyes, there were two ladies walking on the sidewalk, and they started screaming at him. And he said something like, mind your own business, go away. They were cussing and screaming, we're not going anywhere. 
And I remember passing out again that time. I remember the grass, the trees, the sunlight, and these two ladies. Next thing I know, I woke up uh, in a room on a gurney uh, in the hospital. Um, I knew that he was killing people. And he tried to kill me, and there was something that told me that this wasn't his first time. I went to the police department. I was telling them he tried to kill me. Um, you could see the scars where I've been dragged for uh, quite a while, and you could still see the ligature mark on, on my neck. They took me back to Club 219 so that I can trace the way back to his house. And then they knocked on the door, but nobody came to the door. I called the police the next day and asked them about it, and they said that he gave them a completely different story. West Dallas police did that investigation. They followed up uh, talking to Dahmer at the time. Dahmer denied drugging him in any way, just said that Flowers had been drinking and passed out from drinking. One of the times I went back to the police department, one of them said, did you two have intercourse? And I said, no. And they, they looked at each other and busted out laughing. They said, well, if you were drugged up, how do you know um, that you didn't have intercourse? Uh, and they were laughing. I, I don't understand how they didn't listen to the fact that when I told them I know he's going to do this again, and he's probably done it before. They just kind of shrugged their shoulders. Everybody I talked to said, you have to understand police mentality. They're not going to do anything because you're black and you're in a white neighborhood and it involves a white perpetrator. Context of White Supremacy, Catherine Massey Book Club. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, October 5, 2023. So I have been told our third and penultimate study session on Lionel Dahmer's a father's story the audio that we heard at the beginning 
from the Fox Nation documentary that literally came out three days before we started reading this book. I said that was a part of the factor in why we read this short memoir to begin with. I wouldn't have even watched that documentary if we were not reading this book at this moment. Number one, that was part three. It's a three-part feature. The third installment, they pay off on the box that we just read about last week uh, where they were talking about the argument that Jeff and his dad had at his grandmother's house. He's got this wooden box. What's in it? Uh, His dad thinks he's got pornography, gay pornography probably, and all this. And we're like, "Mm -hmm, we probably got the fingers and genitals. Oh, my God. We get the, yes, genitals, skull in the wooden box. Duh. Then he continued, we hear from Ronald Flowers. Now, I don't know if they'll go into great detail about uh, Mr. Flowers in the book. I doubt it. Uh, They interview this privileged black male. He says that he used to love the club where he met Jeff. Club 219. That was the safe spot. There cannot be a safe spot, so-called, in a system of white supremacy. But I mean, for reals, for reals. You think the safe spot is the place with liquor and white sodomites. If anyone is ignorant about racism, it's black people. Black people. Black people. Man, I don't know what more to say other than, uh, man, try to inform yourself about what it means to be white and avoid locations that feature whites and alcohol. Didn't we hear this in Ronald J. Dominic? Doesn't that the same thing? I'm going to go to the spot where they got the liquor and the weed and get them all out of their mind and ah, jump on them and rape them and kill them. The privileged black man. Didn't we hear that? We were reading Ronald J. Dominic at this time last year. Anyway, you heard all that at the end. The police don't take it seriously and mock him and all the rest of it. Of course this case would have been investigated differently if he had been out there getting white people or white women or white gays or white transgender or blah, 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 blah. We will get ready to wrap it up again. Think of the similarities, differences between old Sue Klebold and the book we are about to conclude next week. Catherine Massey Book Club, Lionel Dahmer's A Father's Story, audio segment Part 2 Many months after Jeff had already been sent to prison and at the end of a long day of work, I decided to take a break by going to a movie. Sherry and I picked out the film more or less at random, flipping through the local paper until we came upon an advertisement that seemed to suggest that this particular movie might be somewhat more relaxing than the usual fare. The ad pictured a lovely mountain scene. 
There was a sparkling stream in a wooded valley, and in the middle of the stream a solitary boy was fly-fishing, his line thrust in a wide arc over the water. The name of the movie was A River Runs Through It. As it turned out, the movie was about a wayward son, a smart, nice-looking boy who goes astray despite the best efforts of those who loved him, particularly his brother and his parents. On two occasions during the movie, characters make the point, very significantly, that the tragedy of life is that it is the people who are closest to us whom we cannot seem to reach. Sitting obliviously, watching the screen, munching popcorn, it never struck that this dreadful truth applied to me. Later, when the connection was pointed out, I could not even remember the specific scenes, and certainly I had no thought that the movie's wayward son might represent Jeff, or that the hapless father might be me. We came home from the movie and prepared for bed. The light on the answering machine was blinking, so I turned it on to receive the messages. One of them was a typical crank call, the sort I had grown accustomed to receiving. In this case, it was a teenage boy who in his best horror movie voice warned, I'm Jeffrey Dahmer, and I'm coming home for the weekend. The other message was from a woman. It was a voice that I recognized because of its distinctive southern accent. This particular woman had called quite a few times before, always desperately seeking information about Jeff. Sherry and I had always refused to talk to her, but she had persisted. You know who I am, she said that night in a voice that was eerily pleading. Please pick up. No one had been home to pick up, nor would we have answered her if we had been at home. Because of that, she continued in a soft, ghostly litany. Please pick up. Please pick up. Please pick up. Please pick up. It continued for nearly a minute, a voice echoing in my living room begging me to pick up. But I could not pick up, and I don't mean simply the phone. In a broader sense, I could not pick up on anything that tied me to Jeff in any way other than the one I had already accepted, that biologically I was his father and that I would continue to do my duty toward him as best I could. I would visit him in prison and accept his phone calls on the weekend. I would send him a little money from time to time so that he could buy a few things which the prison did not supply. I would handle whatever small problems he might have. I would try to be encouraging, try to help him make the most of his life. By then, these few simple things were what my fatherhood had been reduced to, a set of routine and relatively undemanding tasks. And so, as I've come to realize, though in some cases I did not realize it until many months after Jeff's trial and imprisonment, I still could not face the deeper and most frightening elements of my relationship to my son. I was still baffled by his acts, but I had no desire to dwell upon them. Certainly, I felt no obligation to do so. As to Jeff himself, I still could not envision him in his murderousness but neither did I make any effort whatsoever to do that. In fact, my mind almost never returned to that part of his life. Instead, when I thought of him at all, it was as a lively little boy, frozen in his innocence, safely positioned in the distant past. 
But even when I thought of him as a man, a prisoner, a murderer, it seemed to me that my son was very far away from me. He was far away in the distance that physically separated us, and which was obvious, but he was also far away in his character and personality, which, it seemed to me, was no less obvious. In both of these senses he was where I wanted him, safely away, far, far away. For the darker side of my parenthood was still beyond my grasp. Chapter 8 At mid-morning on July 23rd, I called my mother in West Alice to let her know that I had made contact with Jeff and that something had clearly happened to him. I did not know exactly what had happened, but I knew with certainty that he was in some kind of trouble. I told her that a Milwaukee police officer had answered the phone when I'd called Jeff's apartment. I added that this same police officer had told me that he was investigating a homicide, but that he had refused to tell me anything more. Instead, he had instructed me to wait for a later call. To my astonishment, my mother informed me that the Milwaukee police were at her house at that very moment, and that they were searching it thoroughly, moving up and down the basement stairs and intently going through everything in Jeff's room. Why? I asked. What are they looking for? My mother did not know. Didn't they tell you anything? I asked. My mother seemed dazed, her reply unclear. It was obvious that she knew no more than I did about what the police were actually looking for as they roamed through her house, or even what kind of crime they were investigating. One thing was clear to me instantly, however. If the police were investigating a homicide, and Jeff was still alive, then it was possible that he was also the person they were investigating. At that point, and for the first time, I began to consider the possibility that my son was not, after all, the victim of a crime, not one who had been murdered, but a murderer. It was a possibility which was confirmed almost immediately. A police officer, Deputy Chief Robert Dews of the West Alice Police Department, came on the line. He introduced himself and asked who I was. I told him, and then he informed me that he had not told my mother everything about the case because he had found her, in his words, rather overwhelmed. "'What's happening over there?' I asked. "'What exactly are you doing?' "'We're conducting a homicide investigation with the Milwaukee Police Department.' "'But Jeff doesn't live with my mother.' "'Yes, I know.' So this investigation, it involves Jeff? Yes, it does. You mean you think that he may have murdered somebody? That's what we're investigating, yes. Despite the fact that such a possibility had quickly entered my mind only seconds before, I was nonetheless stunned by the abruptness of the policeman's reply. For a moment, I was not fully able even to register the full gravity of what had just been said to me. And so Jeff has been arrested? I asked. Yes, he has. For murder? I'm afraid so, Mr. Dahmer. Had Deputy Chief Dews told me that my son had been murdered, I might have had a sudden vision of him as a murder victim, dead at the hands of someone else, 
His body sprawled in an alley or bedroom or some vague landscape my mind quickly imagined. Knowing Jeff as I did, I would have been able to accept such a possibility far more quickly. His shyness, his passivity, his low self-esteem, all of these things made him fit the role of victim far better than any other I might have imagined in a murder scenario. His new apartment was not in a very safe neighborhood, and I knew that he had already been mugged. It would have been easy for me to imagine him coming home late at night, perhaps drunk and staggering, a ready target for a mugging. I also knew that in the past, Jeff had become abusive while drunk, and in a mugging situation, such behavior could have easily ended in his death. But I had been told something else altogether, that my son had murdered someone else. Easy as it would have been to imagine him murdered, I found it impossible to imagine him as a murderer, a dark, hulking figure wielding a knife or a gun. The Jeff I had known was far too soft-spoken, generally passive, and slow to anger. I saw him only as the type of person who could easily be thought of as a hapless victim. In a murderous scenario, I could imagine him in no other role. I called Sherry right away, but she was not in her office. As it turned out, I would not be able to reach her for at least two hours. In the meantime, I called Gerald Boyle. He had previously represented Jeff in the child molestation case, and I thought that he might have some information about the investigation. I found Boyle quite excited. "'Lionel, I've been trying to reach you,' he said. "'People have been calling me all morning.' "'What people?' "'Media people. The press.' "'Media people? What do they want? They're trying to find out everything about Jeff.' What about Jeff? What's going on? Nobody's given me any details. I got a call from the police, Mr. Boyle continued. Jeff has been arrested for attempted murder. I was confused, even a bit relieved. Attempted murder was far less serious than murder. Perhaps the policeman at my mother's house had gotten it all wrong. But it was a relief that quickly disappeared. Hastily, in short, clipped sentences, Boyle described a situation that did not in the least add up to a charge of attempted murder. It was clear he had simply misspoken and that Jeff had not attempted murder, but accomplished it. They found body parts in Jeff's apartment, he said. A lot of them. Different people. Different? More than one person, Boyle said. We don't know how many. It could be three or more. The police found several IDs in Jeff's apartment, too. Young adults, evidently. For a moment, he seemed staggered by the very information he was giving me. I can't believe this is the same Jeff I know. Have you ever talked to his parole officers? Yes. They didn't pick up that he might do any of this? Not that I know of. Boyle sounded incredulous, but moved quickly on to the next point. Well, give me another hour, and I'll try to get more information from the police. Boyle called several times during the next two hours, but he was not able to shed any more light on Jeff's situation. Thus, when I finally reached Sherry, I had no more information than I'd had hours before. I had already talked to Sherry once, 
It had been earlier that same morning, directly after talking to the policeman in Jeff's apartment. We had both agreed that Jeff was probably in trouble again for molestation, a serious charge, but nothing like the one which appeared to confront him now. The police are investigating Jeff for homicide, I told her. It was so far from Sherry's mind that my son could possibly have been involved in a murder that she said, Suicide? Jeff's tried to commit suicide? No, I said, this time more slowly. Homicide. Then I added the only detail that could possibly have been more shocking. More than one. At least three. Three. Three murders. At least. What does a father do with such information? I did what I had always done. I collapsed into a strange silence that was neither angry, nor sullen, nor sorrowful, but just a silence, a numbness, a terrible, inexpressible emptiness. Overwhelmed and unable to deal with the thoughts that whirled through my mind, I mechanically returned to the routine task I'd been doing just before the call to my mother, in this case, editing analysis methods for silica. Dutifully, carefully, with the deepest concentration, I focused on matters of chemical methodology. This is not to say that my mind was not reeling with all that my son might have done, all the unanswered questions of his crimes, or even with the bizarre vision of scores of police officials swarming about my mother's house, but only that I compulsively returned to what remained stable and predictable in my life, the old refuge of the laboratory. Throughout that long afternoon, I told no one about what had happened to Jeff. Instead, I simply labored to maintain my calm, to act as if nothing had happened. All around me, my associates were laughing and joking and going about their normal routines. My office mate talked about some analytical report sheets, whether or not those particular samples had been completed. I answered his questions with the sturdy professionalism that seemed, at that point, the one indisputably reliable feature of my life. For the next few hours, my inner world took on the sinister atmosphere of a dark and desperately guarded secret. It was not a feeling that was new to me, however, but one which, over the years, I had grown accustomed to. In 1988, when Jeff had been arrested for child molestation, I had kept it a secret. I had also kept secret all the other things I had learned after that. I had kept Jeff's earlier arrest for indecent exposure a secret. I had kept his homosexuality a secret, his addiction to pornography, his theft of a department store mannequin, everything a secret. Without knowing it, a kind of secrecy had begun to entomb my life, turning the deepest part of it into a basement hiding place. Now this most secret, guarded, and fiercely protected life was about to be exploded. The very notion of such sudden, terrible, and deeply personal exposure worked to keep me in a state of incomprehensible denial. It was not total denial, however. For example, I did not at any point think that the phone was going to ring suddenly and someone was going to say, April Fool, it's all a joke. Instead, I labored to minimize the awesome information which had suddenly come to me. 
I allowed myself to believe that, although Jeff might be implicated in a homicide, he was not the actual murderer. I accepted the fact that perhaps someone had, indeed, been killed in Jeff's apartment, but I insisted on the notion that the murder might not have been committed by Jeff. Perhaps my son had been framed, set up, I thought. Perhaps all the evidence against him was merely circumstantial. Perhaps Jeff had only found the bodies and, because of that accidental discovery, had been hurled into the center of a series of murders he had had nothing to do with. Desperately, I tried to keep my son in the role of victim, someone who had haplessly gotten ensnared in a net of terrible circumstances. Such conjectures lifted my mind into a state of unreal and dreamy suspension. I literally felt myself hanging above my life, above Jeff's life, above everything but the minute laboratory tasks I continued to pursue with a ferocious intensity. But even as I worked, I was sometimes hit by hot rushes, as if I were being periodically given injections of antihistamines or niacin, waves of heat rushing over my chest and head. It was as if my body had begun to send its own distress signals, warning my mind that it could not forever keep the truth at bay. But which truth? The truth that my son was a murderer? or the truth that my life was tied to his, sinking in the same quicksand. Terrible as it seems to me now, I know that my essential emotional response that first horrible day was based upon a fear of being personally exposed, my life wholly and nakedly revealed, and the excruciating embarrassment that such a process would cause me. Jeff had hit bottom as a son, absolute bottom and I could feel that he was taking me down with him, dragging me into the utter chaos that he had made of his life and doing it publicly. Throughout that endless afternoon, this deep personal dread built steadily in me. To avoid it, I continued to concentrate on my laboratory work. I completed task after routine task, my mind completely focused on the details, as if by such absolute and exclusive concentration I could keep avoiding the frightening disorder that had suddenly overwhelmed the other part of my life, the one I rigidly controlled. Even though I was racing at my top speed, I did not stop working until around 7.30. I had no choice but to complete endless loose ends and brief my supervisor before I left for a stay in Milwaukee of unknown length. At one point on the long drive home, I stopped at one of the rest stops along the Pennsylvania-Ohio Turnpike and called Sherry. She told me that she had been able to get me onto the early morning flight to Milwaukee instead of the one scheduled for later that night. I was relieved because I wanted to gain some mental equilibrium with Sherry before going on to the unknown horrors in Milwaukee. My mind was in a suspended, unreal state a play of whirling, disconnected images. More than anything, I found myself replaying my son's life. I saw him again as an infant, then as a small child playing with his dog. I saw him as a young boy riding his bicycle. I saw his eyes as we had released the bird. I wanted to take him back to that early boyhood time, to freeze him there, so that he could never reach beyond the innocence and harmlessness of his childhood, 
Never reach any of the people whose lives he had destroyed. Never reach me. Each time I thought of the older Jeff, I pushed him aside, shut him up in a closet, smothered him in the darkness, where he sat, alone, with whatever it was he had done. I did not even want to consider the things he might have done, or in any way bring them to mind. At the very thought of murder, my mind closed down or shifted to the side, a maneuver that I would be using for months to come. Sherry was at home when I arrived. She had gotten home around 7.30. A sheriff's patrol car had been waiting for her, and she had immediately asked the three men, two sheriff's deputies and a captain, into the house. The captain, with great concern, had introduced himself, then asked her if she was Jeff's mother. Sherry had replied that she was his stepmother and that she was already aware that Jeff had been arrested. The captain told my wife that he and his men were there to help us in any way they could and would be only a phone call away. When I got home, Sherry told me about all these things and, for the first time, the eeriness of our situation, the sheer enormity of the change that had suddenly overcome our lives, settled in upon us. We were no longer merely parents, and we never would be again. We were the parents, and I in particular, was the father of Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey, not Jeff. Jeffrey Dahmer was someone else, the formal public name for a man who was, at least to me, still Jeff, still my son. Even my son's name had become public property, foreign to me, a press report's designation, the name of a stranger, an abrupt depersonalization of someone who, at least to me, was still incontestably a person. That night I began to feel the weight of my son's public identity more powerfully than at any time before. Turning on the eleven o'clock news, I sat in my living room and saw my son's face fill the screen. Switching from channel to channel, I saw that same face flash before me again and again, along with other photographs and news videos, pictures of his apartment building, of men with masks removing vats, an enormous blue drum, and a squat kitchen freezer. I saw them take out the refrigerator he had so casually opened for our inspection the day we had visited his apartment. Only this time it was being lugged down a flight of stairs and hauled into a police van. I saw hordes of officials as they swarmed in and out of a building whose significance to me had been, before that night, merely casual. In other photographs and videos, these same legions lingered outside my mother's house in West Alice, filing in and out of its front and side doors with a sense of ownership and authority which could only strike me as surreal. Sitting beside me, Sherry stared unbelievingly at the television screen, shocked at the images she saw, unnerved by their intrusiveness, but already beginning to sink into a new, radically altered reality. I could feel her tension and tried to relieve it. Maybe someday this will all be over, I told her. Her reply was gently direct. This will never be over, Lionel, she said. She was right, and as I continued to watch the news that night, Jeff's face flashing before me again and again, I should have known that. 
Only the weekend before, we had gone to St. Louis on a business trip, stopping to visit Dave in Cincinnati on the way. Dave's neighborhood was made up of large Victorian houses, and that evening we had taken a long walk through it. From the streets, we'd seen people lounging on their large porches, talking quietly, enjoying the warm summer night. The peace had been very sweet. In St. Louis, the next day we had gone to a birthday party, mingling with friends and a few of Sherry's friends and business associates. We had stayed at the Holiday Inn, and, strange as it seems now, we had signed the register in our own names. That occasion was the last time we were able to feel safe in doing such an open, ordinary thing as signing our own names innocently and without fear on a hotel register 500 miles from our home. That part of life, its casual anonymity, had suddenly been wrenched from us. We were about to become public figures, and we would never be anything else. For as surely as Jeff had become Jeffrey, we were to become the Dahmers. The next morning I took a 7 a.m. flight to Milwaukee. Once in the city, my friends Dick and Tom Junk picked me up and drove me to the Wisconsin Club to meet Gerald Boyle. Boyle assured me that he would stay on the case and that his assistant was with Jeff at that moment taking down his statement. He told me that he had already scheduled a press conference for that afternoon and that he wanted me to stand at his side when he gave it. It was no doubt a normal request, a show of support between a father and his son, but I refused. I was still guarding my privacy, my right to remain obscure, a figure on the sidelines. I was also guarding my pride, whatever reputation I had fought for as a man, a father, a husband. I cringed at the prospect of standing beside my son's lawyer, of being gawked at by reporters, of having their lights shining in my face. To give up so much of my privacy as a person was simply impossible for me. I was simply too shy, too shocked, too unsure of what I actually felt to stand in a public place and declare that I was Jeffrey Dahmer's father. It is clear to me now that I was still trying, as much as possible, to protect my own and my family's name from the enormous embarrassment and shame that had suddenly fallen upon it. My mother, now in her eighties, had lived an upright and honest life. She had never harmed anyone, and I did not want her to see my face on a television broadcast, see me standing mutely before the cameras, a public spectacle, broken and pitiful and helpless. Because my son had brought her name into public disgrace, I felt duty-bound to keep at least that part of it that was still mine, and which I could still, to some extent, control, out of the glare of the public arena, beyond its rage and scorn. And so, a few hours later, when Boyle stepped before the cameras, surrounded by scores of newspaper and television reporters to declare that my son was anguished and remorseful, to admit, at least figuratively, that he was lost, 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 I was not there to be pointed out, to be questioned, or even to be held up as an example of suffering and devoted fatherhood. I have since come to understand that at that time, and perhaps it is my doom to be so forever, I was a creature of consciously selected roles. 
Rather than having developed a natural fatherhood, I had learned, as if by rote, what a father should do. He should provide physical support. He should give advice. He should take his son to the fishing hole. To some extent, I had learned the same behaviors as regards my obligations as a son. I should visit my mother. I should call her on the telephone. I should send her a birthday card. Both as father and as son, I was the player of a well-learned part. Up until that day in July, when Boyle asked me to stand before the world and declare my fatherly devotion, I had never experienced any deep conflict in these two fundamental and irreducible roles. I could play father and son with equal alacrity, the beauty of the one performance enhancing the beauty of the other. But suddenly, the roles had come into conflict, become intersecting rather than parallel lines of behavior. My role as father demanded that I stand with Boyle. My role as son, as guardian of my family's name, demanded that I not. It would be infinitely pleasant for me to believe that I made my choice based upon a recognizably human criteria, that love or devotion, gratitude or tenderness played some part in my decision. But they did not. I do not even know exactly how I came to decide that I would not stand by Boyle at the press conference that afternoon. Perhaps my sense of the futility of such an appearance played some part, the realization that Jeff was well beyond the salutary effects of such a paltry demonstration. My feeling of the futility of doing it was enforced by Dick and Tom's echoing of the same sentiment when they picked me up after my meeting with Boyle. Or perhaps some part of my brain flipped a coin, and it came down on the side of my role as son. In any event, I did not go to the press conference that afternoon, but to Tom's house where, after a sympathetic review of the day's events, I walked into the bedroom, lay down, and went to sleep. And so I did not even see the press conference. I preferred a brief oblivion instead. Although I could avoid a press conference, I could not avoid the matters with which it had dealt or the fact that Jeff's crimes had become a sensational news event. Around 3.30 p.m., my friends drove me to my mother's house in West Alice. I felt that I needed to explain what Jeff had done, as well as to protect her from harassment. Two reporters had already taken up positions across the street from her house, their camcorders on tripods, so I decided to pass the house, then turn into the alley that ran behind it. Dick spotted another reporter stationed in the alley, however, so he went past the reporter and stopped in a blocking position to allow me to jump out and race through the backyard and through the side door of the house. I found my mother in her recliner, resting silently in the living room. She looked relieved to see me. "'Oh, it's you.' she said. During the next few minutes, I told her that I had seen Jeff's lawyer, had arranged for his defense, and that I had now come to protect her from what was likely to be a great deal of unwanted intrusion. I've seen some things on TV, my mother said, still baffled by the flurry of police activity that had swirled through her house over the last two days. Her mind remained locked in the past, her memories of Jeff disconnected from the most immediate events. When I saw Jeff, 
she said. He looked thin. He looked pale. She appeared highly stressed, confused, her mind unable to grasp the enormity of what Jeff had done. My son's pallid and emaciated appearance constituted a defense in her mind, evidence that so weak a man could not have carried out so strenuous an act as murder. I glanced out the front window, spotted the two reporters across the street, and pulled the blinds. For a long time, my mother and I sat in the shadowy silence of that curtained room. My mother continued to talk, almost obsessively, as if by talking she could get a hold on what my son had done. But her mind was fuzzy, vague, disordered, and the more she tried to get a grip on the events that had recently swept over her, the more the ultimate horror of them eluded her. It was like the dreadful opposite of a rainbow, a nightmare which, as she moved toward it, receded from her grasp. For the next half hour my mother and I continued to sit quietly in the front room. There were moments when it almost felt as if nothing had happened, or could ever happen, that would be able to disturb our peace. But that was an illusion, of course, and we were only able to dwell in it for a short time. For by 4.30 p.m. other reporters had begun to arrive, joining the small contingent that was already there. After that, they descended upon my mother's house in a steady and continually widening stream. They came in cars, in vans, and sometimes on foot. They brought cameras, tripods, microphones, notebooks. They trampled flowers and bushes. They rang the doorbell so insistently that I took down the chimes. They knocked so loudly at the door that they rattled its window panes. Their calls kept the telephone ringing continually so that I finally disconnected it. They peeked in the windows and rummaged around the house and garage. They yelled at us and at each other, their voices a continual disruption to our conversation. To me, this was a terribly frightening intrusion, but to my mother, it was incomprehensible. She had lived her life as one who opened her door at someone's knock, who answered the phone when it rang. She found it nearly impossible not to do those things. At each intrusion, she would react as if it were the first she had experienced. Unable directly to associate the commotion she observed around her with Jeff's crimes, she continually sought the reason for it. Repeatedly, I told her that the people gathered around her house were only reporters, that they were harmless people who were only doing their jobs. It was Jeff they wanted, I told her. It had nothing to do with her. Lost in her own hazy consciousness, my mother found such explanations unacceptable. Since she had only allowed herself the vaguest understanding of Jeff's crimes, she could not connect the frenzy on her lawn with anything he had done. No matter how often I tried to explain it to her, she always renewed her questions. Who are they? What do they want? What's that noise? No answer could satisfy her, and with each attempt, her bewilderment deepened until, by nightfall, she seemed to drift in and out of consciousness her eyes darting about, almost fearfully, like an animal caught in a grave and inescapable confusion. 
By around nine that night, the reporters finally began to drift away, and in the ensuing and welcome quiet, I decided to play a game of double solitaire with my mother. I had played this game with her both as a child and as a young man, and it had always appeared to relax her. She smiled brightly when I suggested it, so I escorted her delicately to her bedroom, and we sat down on her bed and began to play. For the next few minutes, a great quietness settled over us, and some of the childlike fear and anxiety that had marked my mother's face during the evening began to release its grip. We were well into our third hand when I suddenly heard a scattering of hard, metallic pops. They were very loud, and at first I thought that a barrage of stones had been hurled at the front of the house by people who were getting back at Jeff by attacking us. Either that, or something worse, gunshots. I rushed my mother into another bedroom, away from the front of the house, and told her to stay there. Then I ran to the living room and called the police. After that, I waited beside the front window and carefully looked out. The street was dark. There was no traffic. There were no more popping sounds. When the police arrived, I stepped out into the yard. I saw nothing in the street or along the sidewalk, but when I turned back to the house, I saw that its front white aluminum siding was dented in various spots, and that it was dripping with egg yolk in at least a dozen places. There was nothing to do but rinse it off, so with the police still present, I pulled the hose into the front yard and washed the front of the house. A short time later, at around eleven that night, I returned my mother to her room and put her to bed. I will never forget the confusion in her face, the sense of vulnerability, the darkness that gathered in her eyes, her fear. It was just eggs, I told her. She stared at me uncomprehendingly. Eggs? Someone threw eggs at the house, I told her. Why? she asked. There was no way I could explain it all to her. Just eggs, Mom, I repeated. Then I got up and headed for the door. Once at the door, I turned back and looked at her. Good night, I said. She offered a slight but still confused smile. Sleep well, my dear son, she said just before I turned out the light. It did not seem possible that I ever would. Chapter 9 The next morning my friends picked me up and drove me to the Wisconsin Club, where I met Boyle. The two of us then went to the safety building, which, along with the Sheriff's Department and various courtrooms, housed the Milwaukee County Jail where Jeff was being held. On the way, Boyle told me that Jeff had made some statements indicating that he might commit suicide, and consequently he had been placed on suicide watch. Once at the safety building, Boyle and one of his assistants escorted me into a stark room, its walls painted light yellow and with a long bench and table. For a while I sat, more or less silently, while Boyle and his assistant worked on various papers, their backs to me, trying to give me as much privacy as possible. Jeff arrived a few minutes later. In all the days of his alcoholism, in the deepest moments of his long descent, I had never seen him look so utterly haggard, so weak, so broken, so lost. 
handcuffed, unshaven, his hair uncombed, his body draped in loose-fitting prison garb, he came into the room like some character in a cheap prison drama. He showed no emotion when he caught sight of me. He did not smile or offer the slightest sense of welcome. I guess I've really done it this time, was all he said. Then, once again, in what had become the refrain of a life lived as one long apology, he said, I'm sorry. I stepped forward, put my arms around him, and began to cry. While I held him, Jeff stood in place, still showing no emotion. How's Grandma? he asked, as I released him. It was then that we began a conversation that was utterly typical of us in its featurelessness, in the clipped phrases we used, the whole array of quick evasions by which we slipped into triviality, and, by that means, refused to confront the gravity our lives had taken on, the fact that we were both now riding on a nightmare wave. She's doing okay, I told him. She sends her love. He looked as if he felt he did not deserve it. I'm really sorry for all the trouble I've caused her, he said. Well, she's going to be all right, I told him. We've had some trouble at the house, though. There were a lot of reporters around, that sort of thing. So they're really bothering you? They have been, yeah. We had some eggs thrown at the house. He stared at me blankly. I stared at him blankly. The police are helping us, I added after a moment. They do the best they can. Well, maybe all the reporters will go away after a while. Maybe. There was a long silence, neither of us speaking. Then Jeff nodded briefly, expressionlessly, a nod that was little more than a twitch. The roses look good, I told him. The ones you planted. That's good. The yellow ones and the red ones. That's good. It's a nice garden. The cat's doing fine. She always wants to be brushed. Jeff nodded. You know how she likes that. Yeah. She's always trying to be brushed, I said. Remember how you used to do it? He stared at me silently. I shrugged and added nothing else. I don't know what to say, Jeff said finally. I don't either. I really screwed up this time. Yes, you did. I really blew it. Well, you can still be treated, Jeff, I told him. I didn't really realize how sick you were. Jeff said nothing. You need help, Jeff. I guess, he said flatly. We just need to make sure you get some help. He nodded. You know, mental help. I guess so. Maybe you can get better, Jeff. Maybe. With professionals, people who can help you. Jeff seemed hardly to hear me. How's Sherry? He asked, though without interest. Fine. Good. She sends her love. Good. She's at home in Ohio. She didn't come up? No, not yet. He fell silent for a few seconds, then suddenly blurted, The food is bad in here. It is? And it's hard to sleep. There's a lot of screaming. Well, 
Just do your best, I told him. But keep the lights on all the time. Well, try to sleep. Okay. You need to sleep. He thought a moment as if going over the events of the last few days, then he rolled his eyes up toward the ceiling. I really messed up. Yes, but Sherry and I will stand by you, Jeff. Sorry, he said again, but with that same deadness and lack of emotion. He did not seem to comprehend the enormous consequences of what he had done. Sorry, he repeated. Sorry? But for what? For the men he had killed? For the anguish of their relatives? For the torment of his grandmother? For the ruin of his own family? There was no way to tell exactly what Jeff was sorry for. It was at that precise moment that I actually glimpsed the full character of my son's madness, saw it physically as if it were a scar across his face. It was impossible to tell whom he felt sorry for or what he felt sorry about. He could not even imitate regret, much less truly feel it. Remorse was beyond him, and he could probably sense it only as an emotion felt by people in another galaxy. He was beyond the call of a role, incapable of acting a part. His sorry was a mummified remain, an artifact retained from that distant time when he had still been able to sense, if only to imitate, a normal range of feeling. Suddenly I thought of Jeff's childhood, and his general remoteness no longer looked like shyness, but like disconnection, the opening of an unbridgeable abyss. His eyes no longer struck me merely as expressionless, but as utterly void, beyond the call of the most basic forms of sympathy and understanding, beyond even the capacity to ape such emotions. As he stood before me at that instant, my son, perhaps for the first time in his adult life, presented himself to me as he really was, destitute of feeling, his emotions shaved down to a bare minimum a young man who was deeply, deeply ill, and for whom, in all likelihood, there was no way out. Jeff will kill himself, I thought, with a strange certainty. No one can live like this. A few minutes later Jeff was led away, still walking in the same rigid posture, his hands cuffed in front of him. No one can live like this, I repeated in my mind. And yet, in a sense, as I was increasingly to discover over the next few months, I too had lived like this, a man who found it hard to express his emotions, who focused on the minutiae of social life and often lost track of its overall design, who relied on others to direct his responses to life because he could not trust his own sense of the way it really worked a man whose son was perhaps only the deeper, darker shadow of himself. After the meeting with Jeff, Boyle and I returned to the Wisconsin Club. During the drive, he told me that, in his opinion, Jeff was insane, and that insanity was his only possible defense. He said that he already had a psychiatrist in mind, one who could conduct a thorough psychiatric examination of Jeff. He did not say in what way he thought my son was insane. He named no specific disorder. Such determination could only be arrived at through a vigorous psychiatric study, he said. 
Clearly, it was not Boyle's intention to get Jeff off. The goal was to locate him in a psychiatric hospital rather than a prison. In a hospital, Jeff would get considerably better psychiatric help than he would in prison, Boyle told me, and perhaps at some point he might actually become sane. This sounded reasonable to me. Under no conditions would I have wanted Jeff to get off. Although the full extent of his madness was still unknown to me, the man I'd just seen in the small yellow room at the Milwaukee County Jail was clearly insane. Any attempt to set him free, even if I had thought it possible, would have struck me as absurd. At that point, I believed that it was my son's madness that most powerfully and permanently separated us. He lived in a world behind his eyes. I could never enter that world. We would always be separated by the barrier of his mental illness. In a sense, I saw nothing but his insanity. There had been times in the past when I had said to myself, and sometimes to Sherry, He's crazy. I'd usually said it in anger and frustration, and I'd always meant that he was disordered, that he couldn't keep his life together or think his way out of things. It had never occurred to me that he might be thinking his way in to something, that during all the time when I had been so often concerned with Dave, or with my work at the lab, or with trying to get over my divorce, that my eldest son might have been slowly going insane. But now, suddenly, I could see Jeff's insanity in everything about him. It was in his motionless face, in his dull eyes, in the hard rigidity of his body, in the way his arms did not sway back and forth when he walked, even in the expressionless way he muttered, Sorry. And, of course, it was in his murderousness. But as I have since come to recognize, had it not been for his murderousness, had his insanity not finally emerged in the insanity of his crimes, I might never have seen it at all. Until Sherry had found him drunk in his room, I had not seen his alcoholism. Until my mother had discovered the stolen mannequin in his closet, I had not thought him particularly odd and certainly not a thief. Until a great deal of information had come to me after he had been arrested for molesting a child, it had not occurred to me that he was a homosexual, despite the fact that he had never had a date, that he had taken a friend to the prom, that during all the years of his young adulthood he had never expressed the slightest interest in a woman. It was a level of obliviousness, or perhaps denial, that was scarcely imaginable, and yet it was real. It was as if I had locked my son in a soundproof booth, then drawn the curtains so that I could neither hear nor see what he had become. And yet, even at that time, the extent of Jeff's crimes, the fact that he had murdered a great many people, could hardly have been more clear to me. But the deeply perverse nature of his murderousness, along with all the insane thoughts and fantasies which both preceded and followed the murders, still remained vague to me. For although much information, all of it incomprehensibly hideous, had emerged from apartment 213, the full story of my son's crimes had not. But even if I had known everything at this early stage, I'm not sure I would have been able to accept it. Although I had certainly accepted the fact that Jeff was a murderer, 
that he was both a sexual murderer and a multiple murderer. Nonetheless, some part of me could not go beyond these most recent and most horrendous admissions. And so, some part of me shut down. I read the newspapers, I watched the newscasts, but I did not probe for more. I did not ask Boyle to keep me informed as to the details of the case. Nor did I ask the police to report on what their criminal investigations were uncovering. Some part of me did not want to know. The part that lingered in denial, minimized and evaded. The part that, against all reason and the enormous weight of the evidence, still cried out, Not Jeff! before I heard I hadn't read this book before so I hadn't heard that last put buddy Catherine Massey book club so that is section one we will have to get to shyness question question can anyone here if you're listening live if you're listening to the archive you can email can you name an employee of the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department. They can be current, past, don't look, it has to be off the top of the head. That's cheating. And I mean, this is not even, that defeats the whole point. I could go get the catalog right now, just from memory. Can you name one employee, past or present, from the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department? not in the book that we are currently reading. Thank you. Number to dial 605-313-5164 decode 5649431 Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Flipping shy guy Making me, uh, that's old Jeff Dahmer. That's what they're singing about. He's so shy. Please. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. Don't be shy. Star 61 if you have commentary. The email, until justice at gmail.com you can read your commentary uh, on the air as well I am so glad we read this book and I'm so glad that it's quick because we'll be done next week hit it and quit it as I said so win all the way across the board but yeah I would not have read this book at all Columbine Sue Klebold 
uh, comparison contrast. Lots to add this week. Okay. Uh, Let's see. We'll we'll get the callers and then I'll weave in the emails within the callers. We'll do it that way. Star six one. If you dialed in Uh, and make sure you share the program. I'm still blocked out of Facebook meta. Damn Mark Zuckerberg. Share the broadcast uh, so that people know. People, uh, some, I just, I've just mentioned that. I just mentioned that. So it'll be people say, "Oh my God, he didn't post on Meta." Oh Lord, I knew Gus, that old shiftless nigga. I knew he wasn't gonna hang in there. He's been saying he's gonna hang in until justice, please. Like, whoa, whoa, we've been here for fourteen years. They do the sabotage all the time. Meta is not allowing today, but we are here for sure on Twitter at Until Justice. All right, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Hey, Gus, victim from New Jersey. Um, I've listened to the, to the archives. I didn't, haven't got a chance to call, man. So just real fast, some of the things uh, that I picked up. Oh, when you said uh, Milwaukee Sheriff's Department, I would say no other than David Clark, black man. Um, okay, he says... Uh, I shut the older Jeff in the closet, to use a metaphor. Um, I wonder, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do nothing but think about who Cleveland and if her son would have survived, uh, survived uh, Calumbon. Like, will she, is the word compartmentalize or separate, would she have done the same thing, you know, trying to separate the killer from her young boy, uh, which she she did when she I would say when she was making a comparison when she was um, using uh, brain trauma or brain damage, um, uh, she, she 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 separated that from the act that her son committed. So um, I could definitely see Sue Sebold doing the same thing. Um, they were there to help and was a phone call away. The police department, again, the same treatment that Sue Klebold received. You know, the helpful police officer even, even maintained a relationship with the police officer years later. Um, I was trying to protect my own family name. Um, it's for debate. But uh, I guess that's honesty, and I think that was the honesty that was lacking with Sue Klebold. She wasn't honest where she was, you know, she was, her intent was really to protect her name. So Sue Klebold wasn't that honest, but that was part, I think, of her mission to protect her own um, name. Um, When Jeffrey said, I've really done it this time, you know, sounding almost juvenile and childlike, you know, as if he uh, knocked over a bowl of cereal or he, he, he ran into a box and, and, and his, his father came in and he looked at his father and, you know, I've really done it this time. Um, that, that stuck out to me. Um, when he said um, he need help, Jeff, he said, I guess so. <laughs> he was, Jeffrey Diamond needed no help. Jeffrey Dahmer, even if he were to receive help, he, this is what he was committed to doing, period. 
you know, and that right there just basically showed me that Jeff Dahmer was definitely dedicated um, to the mission of terrorizing uh, people. Um, he says, no one could live like this. I, too, have lived like this. Listening to the last uh, last week segment, and he keeps making these comparisons between his son and himself. Very, 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 very interesting. I mean, you know, very interesting. So that statement alone, I think I'm going to sit and ponder on. So, yeah, so it, 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 it's a lot of similarities. I think that he would be uh, Sue Clebo if she was a little bit more hot, <laughs> you know, uh, um, that's, that's what I, that's my, that my uh, opinion of Jeffrey Dahmer's father. And again, um, David Clark, Milwaukee Sheriff, uh, I'll close. Right on, got one employee for uh, Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department, much obliged victim in New Jersey. Fantastic uh, memory and similarity with the treatment, both of these parents of mass murderers and enforcement officers aren't coming and, you know, giving them the side eye. Why don't you do a better job of parenting? Ought to be ashamed of you. They didn't do all that. We're here to help. Let us know if we can be of service. Just give us a call. <laughs> he chomped on all those people that yeah, we're professionals. <sighs> yes, yes. Uh, the uh, other folks. Oh, and before we move forward, this is totally not because I mean we know what happens here, right? Where we should. You should decide the Netflix special, and this really is Columbine and it's the Dahmer piece that we opened the audio section from the Fox three-part series Fox Nation three-part series that came out right as we began this within that they tried that old Jeff is crazy who would chomp on all these people and save the genitals and blah 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 making zombies I haven't got to all that yet uh they brought on, just like old Sue, white experts. And they said, and I said, oh, because not just this, Columbine, maybe even white people in general, because this comes up so frequently. When, didn't we have that whole book? Absolute Madness, Joey 22. That was the first time around in Buffalo. But since this sums up, comes up so frequently, the white experts came on and even with old chomping shy Jeff Dahmer the white expert he said it's really hard to prove insanity when the perpetrator is planning things remember one of our listeners, Genius, said, man, I think Joey 22 was killing these niggers in Buffalo. And his plan was he was going to join the army, go to Fort Benning and pew, gone. They would never caught him. I said, oh, Lord, no, no. 
and it would have worked if he had behaved himself, not been wetting the bed, stabbing Negroes in Georgia, would have worked flawlessly. They had no clue. But I said all that that we heard from Sue Klebold, they planned all that a year in advance and lied to her face, lied mercilessly the whole way through. Old Jeff planning, scoping out my Negras at the 219. This is real hard to go that insanity route. It's, well, hey, he's got a schedule here and a calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did not say old Jeff was insane at the end of all of this. That even gave me pause. Like, dang, if Jeff is sane, whew, Dill, Reb, Joey, 22. I mean, you stack every, if Jeff is sane, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Hello, Mandy Hurt. Fresh princess in Philly. I do believe there are some inaccuracies. Um, with the Jeffrey Dahmer movie that was on Netflix. I, I guess it's a docu-series. I watched it, and if I'm recalling this gentleman's attempted murder correctly, um, the gentleman that you played in the beginning of the show, I think they only, I think they depicted him as being able to escape that same night. Like, two of his victims they were able, two of his black male victims were able, were portrayed as being able to escape the same night. The opening victim and then this guy, because it's a kind of memorable scene when he was at the grandmother's house. Um, they portrayed it as him drugging him, but him getting out the same day and being dropped off, same night and being dropped off in a field. And waking up in the field, and then the people found him. If I'm recalling correctly, almost positive that I am. Um, if I could pause right there, just since you asked, he did state explicitly that he was there for four days uh, on the property. Right. Said that it, it wasn't. He was not one of the Ronald Flowers. If that's that's the person we started with, he said specifically that he was there in the house for four days before right. he was able to get out. And so he was yeah, I think, no, in the movie, they portrayed that victim as being able to leave the same night and being dropped off in the field. Talking about they the Netflix movie or? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. that's why I was and confused. I, I was like, what? He said, in the, okay, I got it. I got it. We started yes, with the Fox the, Nation. The gotcha. I got you. Oh, You're yeah. talking about the Netflix that, movie. That victim, yeah, that was that was because you mentioned um, the Columbine documentary. I guess Michael Moore thing. I'm just liking it to the inaccuracies in the Netflix version of what they portrayed. So listening to that victim, if you actually hear his statement, and then you go back to the Netflix docu series, you're not getting an accurate representation of what actually happened. It it leads you to believe that people were able to escape the same day, not that he kept them for several days and did all manner of things to them. So that's, uh, I guess, a white supremacist practice in terms of 
obfuscating and hiding information. Uh, as far as the father today, he kind of is striking me as sounding like Sue Clevel in terms of minimizing what the son had done, like saying, well, maybe somebody got murdered in his apartment rather than thinking that he was the actual murderer. Uh, same as Sue thought he was, uh, thought Dylan was a part of the shooting, but not um, the shooter or something like that, or he got tricked into something. Um, it seems like when it comes to white people's mental health, they always have an excuse uh, backed by some type of person with a scientific degree in the medical field, like psychi psychiatry, to say that this person is crazy or not. I guess the difference with Jeffrey Dahmer is, I think the reason why they didn't say he was insane, not just because he was planning things, but because he ate people. I feel like they kind of, like, white people vote people off the island once they start chopping on each other. Um, even if you look at that plane crash in the Andes and the soccer team had to survive by cannibalism, people were like, ew. <laughs> you know, I think that's like on their list, except when they're eating us, the electrical Negro. Um, I think it's on their list of things that they don't, like, we have to cut it off here. Um, because usually with white serial killers, if they do start eating people, they just, you know, they kill them. They don't keep them around much longer. Um, so it's just the thoughts that I had. Thank you. Much obliged, Fresh Princess in Philly. Uh, thank you for clearing up my confusion. I think, I don't know, I don't see, I didn't watch the Netflix uh, project from last year, see. Um, and deliberately, we talked about that, uh, about this time last year, about, you know, I think even other listeners, you know, say that they were not going to watch it for whatever reasons and all that good stuff. I just, I think I watched like the first 20 minutes of the first episode to verify that this is what I think it is. Yep. Deuces. Um, but I don't know if people call that like a docu-series or what ha cause it's not a documentary. Right. Uh, so I don't movie fiction. Uh, miniseries like those would fit but yeah I hope people do not that's not in common parlance the Netflix documentary about Dalai Ooh, that is yikes yikes I'm not surprised to be spreading those sorts of uh, lies uh, we got some more comparison to so I thought the same uh, at certain points in the text today but I have to get to my notes as we proceed star six one other folks have commentary sprinkle in uh, emails as we roll along here let's see email number one uh, I feel like I should have heard that before did they did they this is uh for people who don't know, Fresh Princess is one of our many resident true crime experts. Um, did they bring that out? I felt like they talked about some of the many, many, many racist problems. Is that like commonly known that, man, they lied and, you know, tried to make this seem like these black people were not tortured for days and days on end and made it seem like they, you know, this was just a few minutes type of a thing? Yeah. They... Okay. Okay. So this series. I will say had the most accurate to date representation of what happened. They made like 
they they sliced people together like the neighbors that were complaining um some of the victims like the one i mentioned the gentleman they did if i'm recalling correctly they did not portray him as being held captive for four days they portrayed it as the same way he left the bar and then jeffrey dahmer made him some coffee and he got real limp and everything. And then the grandmother came downstairs and he was like, oh, I'm just going to put him in the a, a, a taxi. And he like put him on a bus and somehow the guy was like stumped off in the field or something, if I'm recalling correctly. But they didn't make it seem like he was held for like four days and tortured. Minimize. They do that all the time, man. Like that, that right there. That's the same thing with uh, O.J. Simpson. Uh, the big, I think, was that Fox Nation? That might. Oh, that was FX. That wasn't. But it was close. I might be same parent company. But anyway, the uh, O.J. Simpson. Uh, there, uh, um, People vs. O.J. That one. Uh, same thing about Columbine that she already mentioned, and this one that those document the document oh my god on the buffalo shooting the first time around joey 22 they're awful they leave out so much of the important details that's why i've said consistently you can get the worst book on one of these events it's generally going to be better than the documentary it'll have more details at least set you in a better direction to know what happened i mean that is blasphemous that i like i remember it was so many people were upset about that but i was like i'm not yeah you got me with bowling. You got me with bowling for Columbine. You're not getting me this time. At least they said bowling for Columbine was a documentary. They didn't even do that for the Netflix thing. Okay. Email number one. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, okay. Greetings, Gus listeners. I'm finding this an interesting text. I never heard of a lot. Uh, oh, I never had a lot of interest in Jeff. Me either. I'm not sure I would learn anything constructive by reading about the most gory details of his crimes, which is not the theme of this text. Chapter 8. His new apartment was not in a very safe neighborhood. Dun, dun, dun. Presumably, he means lots of non-white neighbors. They even talk about that uh, explicitly in the Fox Nation documentary, as she said, that has the na- they neighbors talk about this specifically. Like, it, I think they even have what's the what's the one of the colorful lines that one of the black people has about this apartment where Jeff was at. He said it was it was one of the better slums amongst a large pile of slums. I think that was how it was phrased, but I think he said it better than I'm remembering. Anyway, but it's lots of dark people. Anyway. Uh, two, uh, indecent exposure, homosexuality, pornography, stolen mannequin, everything a secret, the compartmentalizing. Let's not forget the smells in Granny's basement and garage, Jeff's box, pentagrams, satanic Bible, pedophilia, security apartment, and the firearms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hey. At- <laughs> At some point, you just got to cut the list. You're like, hey, we, 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 we. Jeff has not been, uh, he's no angel. Number three, the captain with great concern. He is remaining on code, showing compassion for fellow suspected racists, just like Sue and Tom Klebold, all the way in Colorado. Maybe they look out for the Buckeyes. You think that's what it is? The Ohio State connection? Go Buckeyes. Number four. 
Dave's neighborhood made a large, made of a large Victorian houses. This means they were mostly white people in the neighborhood. I told you, it's like almost all the places that they go, West Ames and most of these other places in Ohio, Wisconsin, these are sundown towns. These are super duper 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 white neighborhoods. Uh, number five, my mother never harmed anyone. Not possible in a global system of racism white supremacy and real talk Wisconsin like oh my gosh they toss more Negroes we talked about all that before anyway six I would not stand by boil buckets and buckets of words you were just ashamed which I think he does kind of concede but let's continue embarrassed and knew you were at least partly to blame you could not think of anything to say how about regardless of my son's guilt or innocence my thoughts and concerns are primarily with the families of the victims I'll take no questions. I think he probably like real talk. And I'm good. <laughs> like he said, he said, I'm, I'm, I don't even, I, I can't even go home and talk to the children. I'd like put that on a statement or something. And yeah, just read that for me, Boyle. And I'm, I'm gonna go. Yeah. I got to get back to the lab. I can't. <laughs> he said that more or less. Right. Right. He said that kind of number seven, uh, hard metallic pops, aluminum, aluminum siding dripping with egg yolk, metallic pop man I was on the floor cracking up laughing like did rap and vodka you think they drove to? Like, nah, nah, nah. they'd be 10 or 11 or something Goof like well you think ah <laughs> uh, but that is the that's I mean we read about that's how we're reading this book now that's you know the missions the busy box we put the toilet paper in the anyway uh Given the context, this does not seem all that bad. Non-white victims get a lot worse treatment for a lot less. Real talk, you know what I thought? Sue Klebo didn't even have one egging, one TPing. Remember when uh, Lionel told us, he said, uh, the teen called the house and said, I'm Jeffrey Dummer. I'm coming home this weekend. Remember that one? Sue didn't give us one phone prank. I said then if any of those things had happened, she would have written about it. They didn't leave no urine filled balloons on the front porch. Flaming bag of dog poo. Chapter nine. <clears throat> uh, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, we'll pause there. We'll get to that as we proceed. Uh, Wait a minute, did we get... Yeah, we didn't get to that. We'll come back to that one. All right. Other folks who dialed in with the hand up, uh, if we missed you, proceed. Uh, may I be heard? Greetings, Lauren. Hello. Um, good evening, everyone. <laughs> good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, I think this part was interesting. And Lionel Dahmer, um, he, I think he was much more honest in this segment than Sue Klebold um, was in her book. It was a couple of things, but let me see. Um, 
said, I was still baffled by his acts, but I had no desire to dwell upon them. Certainly, I felt no obligation to do so. See, that's, that's interesting, and it's honest. Um, he, uh, he said, but even when I thought of him as a man, a prisoner, a murderer, it seemed to me that my son was very far away from me. He was very far away in the distance that physically separated us and which was obvious, but he was also far away in his character and personality. I don't really think that's true. They were pretty similar, which it seemed to me was no less obvious. In both of these senses, he was where I wanted him, safely away, far, far away. That was honest. I don't think Sue Bowl would admit it, you know, she didn't want to be, um, you know, right next to Dylan. Um let me see. When he was talking about the mother, you know, after the police go to her house and stuff and, you know, he's spending the night with her and he keeps explaining things to her, why the reporters are there, why they're outside. No, they're just here for Jeff. And it was like she couldn't understand any of it. And I think she's, you know, she's just getting really old. And also it's a pretty difficult situation to comprehend. But, you know, to me, that just uh, reiterated, like, his mom was much too old to be dealing with Jeffrey Dahmer and all of his murderous, oh, man, I was about to say, say shenanigans, but there's got to be a better word than that. Um, also, when he talks about, like, when he realizes what happened, you know, he's calling his mom, you know, he calls Sherry, all this stuff. He was at work. Like, he was telling that whole story. I had no idea he was at work. And the thing is, I don't think anyone at his job would have had any idea what was going on if he didn't tell them, you know, because I think he told his boss before um, he took leave or whatever. And if it would have never been on TV, nobody would have ever known. I mean, he is just, the way he's able to act and compartmentalize super interesting, and I think it's really similar to what his um, son was just doing. I, I too, took note of the way the police visited um, Sherry, and the captain told my wife that he and his men were there to help us in any way they could, and they would be only a phone call away. And it's like, I was thinking, do the police ever do things like this with black people? I think the answer, I mean, maybe it's happened once in history, but you know, I can't think of anything like that. And, and it's like, no matter what white people do, the police never forget. And white people seem to always understand that the police really are there to help them. And I just, what must that feel like to just feel like you're supported by the police, by the state, by the entire world, really? Um Another part stood out to me, it, it, it read, rather than having a developed, hmm, sorry, am I, uh, give me a second here. Oh, boy. Okay. It says, rather than having developed a natural fatherhood, I had learned as if I wrote what a father should do. He should provide physical support. He should give advice. 
he should take his son to the fishing hole. To some extent, I had learned the same behaviors as regards my obligations as a son. I should visit my mother. I should call her on the telephone. I should send her a birthday card. Both as father and as son, I was the player of a well-learned part. See, that right there, that sounds that sounds kind of psychopathic to me. He's just doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. You know, he's doing what other people do. Um, and I think I should take that part really seriously and accept that this is what a lot of white people do. You know, I need to keep that in mind when I interact with these people. And um, uh, another thing, he said, my mother continued to talk almost obsessively as if by talking she could get a hold on what my son had done, but her mind was fuzzy, vague, disordered. And the more she tried to get a grip on the events that had recently swept over her, the more ultimate horror of them eluded her. I noted his use of the word fuzzy, and, you know, I equate that with, you know, like like a Negro's head. And, you know, it's vague and disordered. Um, and I think that's all I have right now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Lauren, uh, let's see. I had noted the word fuzzy. As well, those woolly minded people. Uh, let's see. Uh, see if I can get to some of my notes. If other folks have commentary they want to get in, star six one. We are wrapping this book up next week. As I said, huge part of why I wanted to read this. We would not bog down. Pow, moving on. New book. But we'll finish it up next week. If folks have final thoughts, comparisons, contrast, if you write anything, any projects relating the two books that we read, the memoirs, we will. you can share them, post them, all that good stuff next week. Um, we will finish up with a father's story. Uh, let's see. When he says that he thought of Jeff as a lively little boy frozen in his innocence, uh, safely positioned in the distant past. I felt like that's the exact same sense that I got with Sue Klebel, all the calling him Dill. Uh, and she has baby pictures uh, of him on many of the renditions of the cover art uh, for her memoir. And even many of the pictures of him in the book, they're not of him at, you know, 17, right close to when he's almost 18, about to graduate there of him when he is substantially younger on uh, the way that she talks about him and such. Uh, her bright, shiny penny. Uh, he and many of the pictures in this book also are of uh, are of Jeff when he was eighteen or younger. Uh, let's see, chapter eight. Uh, Jeff gets described as a dark, hulking figure wielding a knife or a gun. Uh, I mean, even at his healthiest, Jeff is pretty pale. I would not think of him as tall, dark, and handsome, and I'd be willing to wager many, many shiny pennies that he was never referred to as dark, tall, and handsome. At any rate, when I saw that, I, I, 
And it even, because Dark is in this book so many times. Dark, in fact, is in here 38 times. That even gave me pause. Like, wow, I mean, they're living in all of these racially restricted regions where it's exclusively white people. Jeff is white. Lionel is white. Sherry is white. What's all this dark? Uh, Let's see. Even to Lauren's point uh, about the pathology, perhaps, of Lionel, where he's kind of mimicking what he's seen other people do and how they behave in relation to their, you know, mom, I'll send her a card or whatever the, whatever he's seen other people do. That does not seem like, wow, I, you know, just have normal human connections and, you know, this is what we're going to do. Like, no, I just kind of look around and when I get overwhelmed, I run back to the lab. He says, I mechanically return to the routine task I've been doing just before the clone call to my mother. In this case, editing analysis methods for silica dutifully carefully with the deepest concentration I focused on matters of chemical methodology think the white man in the lab coat microscope back to an environment where I can you know function rules structure I have to deal with all this my son is chomping like woo and this is kind of another one like kind of reminding me of Sue. I think some people said that they felt like Sue was not really too much into the parenting. Like, eh, he wrote this paper and eh, eh, eh. get back to my poetry. I got other things to do. Uh, let's see. Here, okay, so here it is again. I had to change my highlighter color. For the next few hours, my inner world took on the sinister atmosphere of a dark and desperately guarded secret. It was not a feeling that was new to me, however, which one over the years I had grown accustomed to. Uh, Jeff had been arrested for child molestation. I kept it a secret. We talked about all that compartmentalization. I too think that is, I mean, yikes. I could easily see how this sort of environment where none of this, and I mean, this is like heavy weight, child rape and all of that. It's just, uh, it's, Hide that away. Keep this a secret. Don't tell anybody at work. And even real talk, based on what happened with Sue Klebold, I'm pretty sure most, if not all, of this would. Boys will be boys. What can you do, Lionel? Come on. We'll stop at the bar after work. Let's see. Oh, man. I had to change my highlighter color up again. He's talking about old Jeff. He said Jeff had only found the bodies after the police had told him, yeah, he's been arrested for he says because of the accidental discovery had it been hurled into the center of a series of murders he had nothing to do with that sounded so Sue Klebold right maybe Dale had been brainwashed or something desperately I tried to keep my son in the role of victim someone who had haplessly gotten ensnared in the net of a terrible circumstances Whew. victim gotta if they're classified as white they got to be a victim. Now, you already know yours. your son is a child rapist. That alone would give pause. Oh, man. Uh, he's done it again. Let's see. Uh, I thought this was a moment of honesty where he says the truth was that my son was a murderer or the truth that my life was tied to his sinking in the same quicksand. Terrible as it may seem to me now, I know that my essentially emotional response that first horrible day was based of 
based upon fear of being personally exposed, my life wholly and nakedly revealed, and the excruciating embarrassment that such a process would cause me. Jeff had hit bottom as a sun, absolute bottom, and I could feel that he was taking me down with him, dragging me into the chaos, utter chaos that he'd made of his life in doing it publicly. That, I thought, was a very strong, super important uh, and pretty honest, probably. Uh, I don't even, I don't remember Sue Klebo talking about feeling that she personally uh, felt some sort of embarrassment uh, about all of this. Like, I don't know. I have to go back and check. Y'all can let me know. But I don't, I just do not remember her feeling a sense of uh, embarrassment. I definitely remember the I am a victim about all of this. And then other people saying that too, but uh, meaning she, Sue Klebold, Tom, they're victims too, but hmm, because it was so, you know, Dill did this in spite of and all that. Uh, but the, the, the metaphor, he says the publicly, the public shame and exposure of all this, because he said it's personally exposed. Uh, my life would be holy and nakedly Revealed. I know Dr. Welsing would make something of that. Like, wow, you're talking about somebody who's eating a lot of non-white flesh here, and you got a white person talking about all of this. He's being exposed and nude before the world because of what his child did. Like, wow, that is, hmm, okay. Uh, and he writes a book about it. Uh, let's see. I was also guarding my pride, whatever re- reputation I had. Thought for as a man, a father, a husband, I cringed at the prospect of standing beside my son's lawyer being gawked at by reporters of having their lights shining in my face. A tad bit. Uh, the embarrassment, he says that again. Uh, the embarrassment and shame that had fallen. Again, I don't remember. I have to look to see if she talks about shame because I just don't. That is not the sense that I left that book with. A sense of shame. Uh, because it was so defiant at points that he did this in spite of how he was raised and, you know, that sort of uh, tongue with him and that he had some sort of mental health issue. Uh, let's see. All this. <laughs> love it when this one pops up. So uh, Lionel's talking with his mother. Uh, when I saw Jeff, she said he looked thin, he looked pale. She appeared highly stressed, confused, her mind unable to grasp the enormity of what Jeff had done. My son's pallid and emaciated appearance constituted a defense in her mind, evidence that so weak a man could not have carried out so strenuous an act as murder. That one, too, I thought was really important. Um... One, again, white is generally, when we're talking about people being described as pale, that is generally associated with bad health, being colorful, vibrant, that is generally associated with good health. Just pointing that out. Uh, And the defense, again, old Jeff is a child rapist. So him appearing emaciated, weak, not like a man, not a tough, strong man, matters a lot less if you're going to go get children and or 
people that you drug so that you can take advantage of them. And you go get non-white people who are confused about racism, white supremacy, what it means to be classified as white. Uh, let's see. Got the eggs. We got that. We heard about the staring blankly. Uh, the thousand yard stare one more time, Sue Clebo. Uh, yeah, we can get to the oh, the insanity. Yeah, that'll come up later. Was anything else? Oh, and he says Jeff that he was homosexual. Even that gave me pause because man, the child molestation of this like. He's, yeah, I even have to read the waiver. Until a great deal of information had come to me after he'd been arrested for molesting a child, it had not occurred to me that he was a homosexual. That, just the, this is a, how does that equate to homosexual? That is child rape. I don't, I mean, that gave me great pause right there. Uh, child rape should not, or I don't know, maybe I don't have it correct, but that should not equal oh yes homosexual activity like what no that's just child rape uh never had a date that reminded me of somebody too anyway we'll get to audio segment number two if you did not get to share take a note jot it down we'll have time to share once audio segment two concludes Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy a father's story Lionel Dahmer. Once I had seen Jeff, I remained with my mother for a few days, then returned to Medina County, not far from Akron, where Sherry and I were living in a condo in a spacious residential area. It was near her work, though distant from mine, so for the last few years I had been spending the week at my job in Pittsburgh, then returning home for the weekend. Once at home, Sherry brought me up to date on all that had happened at home during the last few days. The same kind of media whirlwind that had swirled around my mother's house had swirled around this one, too. Reporters had staked themselves out at various places around the house. She had continually heard her name called from the outside, reporters begging her for interviews. There had been no let-up on these intrusions, the constant ringing at the door, the constant ringing of the telephone. In response, Sherry had disconnected the doorbell and let the answering machine take our calls. For days, as she told me, she had felt like a trapped animal. It had gotten so bad that the sheriff's department had recommended that she leave the house, but she had refused. They had also recommended that she change her telephone number to one that was unlisted, but she had refused to do that, too. I will not be run out of my own house, she had told the sheriff's deputies. During all that time, she added, only one neighbor had offered assistance. In all her life, she said, she had never felt more alone. The fact that seemed hardest to understand was that we, ourselves, had done nothing to deserve such unwanted attention. But this was a fact that no longer mattered. Perhaps it had never mattered. We were the Dahmers. We had ceased to be anything else. That night, we hardly spoke at all. It was as if each of us had been gutted. Drained, exhausted, still partly numb, we sat on the sofa and stared at the television. But as we both separately realized, even this light, 
generally relaxing activity, so common among ordinary people at the end of the working day, was now filled with extreme and unavoidable tension for us. For at any moment in the middle of comedy, at the tail end of drama, just before a commercial, we might suddenly see the face of my son, a face that I, at least, profoundly did not want to see. Arriving home on Sunday, July 28, 1991, I had fully expected to return to work at the laboratory the next morning. Life had to go on, I thought, and certainly, given the projects that I had to put on hold in my rush to Milwaukee, I needed to get back to put them in some semblance of order. But my return to the normalcy of work was not to be as easy as all that. On Sunday night, I had called the personnel director at my job. He had told me that a caravan of media trucks, complete with satellite disks, had shown up at the laboratory on Wednesday. They had taken up nearly the entire traffic circle. Fewer people had shown up the second day, but the director believed that it was better for me to remain at home. Maybe you should stay in Ohio until we're sure it's all died down, he said. And so, on that Monday morning, neither Sherry nor I went to work. Instead, we stayed at home, listening to the incessant clangor of the phone, normally a welcome sound, or at least not an unwelcome one, but now a jarring one as if it had become the single blunt instrument the whole world could use against us. From the very beginning, the nature of the phone calls we received was very different from the nature of the letters that later began to pour into us as well. Sometimes we received offers from people to use their homes as a refuge, along with messages of genuine sympathy or understanding. Usually it was just the opposite. Often it was a television network, a newspaper, a magazine, all of them desperate for a story. On other occasions, it was a lawyer asking to represent Jeff, or a psychiatrist or psychologist seeking access to examine him. Rarely, it was something worse, people who had become obsessed with Jeff who wanted to talk to him, to meet him. Within days after Jeff's arrest, a single terrible aspect of his murders became obvious the element of race. From the beginning, it had been clear that almost all of Jeff's victims had been black, and this fact had made a great many people see him as a race killer, someone who had purposely chosen black victims. Of all the charges that had been made against Jeff, this seemed to me the only one that absolutely was not true. My son had done terrible things, although at that time I didn't know just how terrible some of them had been, but his murders had not been racial murders. He had wanted bodies, muscular male bodies. For me, it was as simple as that. The color of their skin hadn't mattered to him in the least. There were many people who simply didn't believe this, however. They saw the faces of Jeff's victims, the fact that most of them were black, and drew their own conclusions. It was a conclusion that attracted a large number of people, even some celebrities, but it wasn't an idea I could accept. True, there were many, many things that I didn't know and had never known about Jeff. But I did know that he was insane. I had glimpsed that insanity, and I knew that his crimes had had nothing to do with race and everything to do with madness. He had preyed upon young black men merely because they had been the easiest to prey upon. 
Many of them had been poor, and so they had needed the paltry fifty dollars he had offered them. Others had simply been available in the neighborhood, and he had taken advantage of the sheer convenience of having them near at hand. I saw Jeff's murders in precisely those terms, analytically rather than emotionally. But others saw his crimes quite differently, and in the following days they held demonstrations and called for the firing of the police chief of Milwaukee, along with the officers who had, at various times, failed to capture Jeff. The city appeared on the point of explosion, and as I watched the tension build in Milwaukee, it seemed inconceivable to me that anything so enormous could have been generated by my son. My mind recalled only a young man who was passive and more or less nondescript, a failure at almost everything he had ever tried, a mixer in a chocolate factory, a job that placed him barely above a menial laborer. Now he was not only famous, but the catalyst for a thousand different reactions. All his life he had been so very small, it seemed to me. There were times he had been so small that I'd scarcely seen him at all. Now he was gigantic, the public personality around whom enormous forces swirled. How could this be the same Jeff who spoke in mumbled sentences, who'd sold blood for liquor, who had muttered his characteristic, sorry, at every offense, then slunk away embarrassed and ashamed. How could so small and insignificant a man be blown up to such dimensions at such a blinding speed? How could so gray and unaccented and generally pathetic a figure generate such passion? Never had the vast gulf that separated what Jeff was and what he had done seemed so wide. At that time, of course, it hardly occurred to me that Jeff was not alone in being transformed into a symbol, but that Sherry and I were being put through the same process. But as the days passed, both of us realized that we had also begun to take on larger-than-life qualities— that our lives had assumed an unexpected significance for a vast number of people whom we had never met and would never know. For years, Sherry and I had lived quietly near Medina, an ordinary couple who had gotten the same mail everyone else did, letters from relatives, advertisements, bills, even the occasional flyer that did not bother to give a name, but listed us only as occupants. The anonymity of that kind of life had abruptly ended with Jeff's crimes. Only days after they had been revealed, and Jeff's face was plastered across every newspaper and television screen, almost any letter in Ohio that was addressed to the Dahmers, and which gave no further directions, came to us. They began arriving almost from the very first days after Jeff's arrest. They came from all over the United States and from several foreign countries. The vast majority were sympathetic letters written by people who wanted us to know that they could feel our troubles, although, as they admitted, they could not imagine the extent of them. A few letters came from organizations such as CURE, an association of people whose relatives are in prison. In general, they were letters of support, letters of advice. But there was another kind of letter as well, letters that came from people who identified with us as parents whose lives had finally been consumed in the fire of parenthood and who sympathized with our ordeal. Poignantly, many were from other parents whose children had also gone terribly astray. 
Often these letters began with, I have a son, or I have a daughter, and then went on to tell us of some child they no longer saw or talked to, a girl or boy who had slipped beyond their grasp, fallen into drugs or bad company or simple isolation, and never returned again. They encouraged us to stand by Jeff as they had stood by their children. Sherry read all of these letters, and I would often see her sitting alone with piles of them scattered at her feet. I read very few, and even then, only those she kept out for me to read. I did not want to read them, and it was hard for me to understand why Sherry did. I didn't want to feel for these people or to associate myself with them. Sherry felt for each and every one, however, and I could see the toll it took on her. She had married me thinking that we might make a peaceful life together. Now she found herself the living symbol of all that can go wrong in even the most ordinary and carefully ordered life. Almost from the beginning, the disarray of my first family had intruded upon our marriage. The emotional upheavals created by the ongoing battle over Dave, the earlier problems with Jeff's alcoholism, and then later with his arrest for child molestation, these had surely been enough to rip at the heart of any marriage. Certainly, such grim complications were not part of what Sherry had bargained for in marrying me. But now, in addition to all that, she had been picked up by the tornado of Jeff's crimes, and as the weeks passed, it became clear that she might never be put down by it. Without knowing it, without my having ever given her the slightest hint of it, she had married into a nightmare that might never end. Day by day, as the months passed, I saw the strain of this new reality eat away at my wife, both physically and mentally. I saw her health deteriorate, her generally buoyant mood darken into a grim resignation. I saw her sleepless, saw her crying, saw her exhausted and depressed. I did not know what to say or do about any of these things. I could see the stain of my first marriage sinking into my second, see Jeff's crimes poisoning everything. A terrible sense of helplessness settled in upon me, and I felt myself become like Jeff, a man who had nothing to offer but a dull, I'm sorry. I returned to work for the first time on Tuesday, August 6th. A few of my co-workers expressed their sympathy and offered any assistance I might need. Others admitted that they were at a loss as to how they should react or what they should say. Still others went directly to their duties, avoiding the issue altogether. One worker said simply, There but for the grace of God, Lionel, by which he meant that it could happen to any father. Sherry returned to her office not long after I did. She confronted a similar situation. Her fellow workers greeted her casually and then went about their business, pretending as much as possible that nothing whatever had happened. This was understandable, of course. What was there to say? In general, however, work once again became my refuge, safer than my home, the place to which I could escape from the whirlwind that circled my house, that intruded upon my life with letters I did not want to read, phone calls I did not want to answer, a marriage that, at times, appeared to be disintegrating. There were other calls I had to answer, however. One of them was to the duty of being a son. In the weeks following Jeff's arrest, my mother's health had begun to decline rapidly. 
both mentally and physically. At this time, she was no longer living in the family home, the one she had lived in for 51 years. Jeff's crimes and their subsequent notoriety had made it impossible for her to remain in the house she and her husband had built in 1939. Consequently, soon after Jeff's arrest, and in order to secure her safety, my mother had been moved to a friend's house. After that, she would never again tend the garden she had worked at for most of her life, and which contained flowers she had brought from her own family's original homestead. Visiting my mother during her illness was a grueling experience. Suffering now from senile dementia, she had not been able to adjust to her new residence. Each night, she would search for the stairs that had led up to the bedroom of her house in West Alice. As the months dragged on between Jeff's arrest and trial, I incessantly moved back and forth between the poles of son and father, sometimes even relaying information between my mother and my son. During trips to Milwaukee, I went from my mother's residence to Jeff's prison. On one occasion, I had my mother record a message to my son. Very weak now, her lucidity swimming in and out, my mother labored to record the last message she would ever give to him. Slowly, ponderously, her voice very weak, my mother spoke into the small recorder I placed at her lips. I love you, Jeff, she said. On August 28th, Sherry and I met with Boyle and one of his assistants in order to discuss Jeff's case. This was the first time he had met Sherry. We wanted to find out if Boyle was, in fact, going to represent Jeff through the entire court proceeding. If he was, we wanted to know the nature of his defense and the approximate cost. The meeting did not go well. It seemed clear to me that Boyle was guarded in answering many of my questions. He claimed that Jeff did not want to see us because he was embarrassed by his crimes. It was better that we not do anything that might increase his stress. In addition, Boyle seemed unable to fix a final fee for his services. As to Jeff's defense, Boyle said that he was in the process of determining its exact nature. He told me that he was interviewing psychiatrists, psychologists, and forensic experts, and that he would only be able to chart a defense after getting their input. When I left the meeting, I felt befuddled unable to understand where I stood in Jeff's defense, if anywhere. Perhaps more than at any other time, I felt that my son's fate had slipped out of my hands. I was never to see Jeff alone. Now his future appeared to rest absolutely in the hands of others. My only task was to appear to be his father, to wait patiently for his trial then to occupy my assigned place in the courtroom as powerless and, in a sense, as utterly faceless as the male mannequin Jeff had once stashed in the dark closet of his bedroom in West Alice. By the fall of 1991, Sherry and I had heard my son described so often as a monster, a ghoul, a demon, that we felt it time to speak out, to let the world know that there had been another Jeff a little boy who had been like other little boys. In a sense, we wanted to resurrect that boyhood, though in no way to condone what the man had done. In a sense, we also wanted to speak to the victims' families to make it known that in supporting Jeff, we were in no way supporting what he had done, but were as horrified as they were by his crimes. 
And so, on September 10th, we consented to our first television interview. It appeared on Inside Edition and was conducted by Nancy Glass. During the interview, I said that I felt a very great responsibility for what my son had done, along with a deep sense of shame. Then, my voice broke suddenly, and I quickly reached for the glass of cola that had been put on the table beside me and ducked behind it. My words somewhat muffled, I continued, my voice still cracking slightly as I spoke. When I disassociate myself from this thing, I said, I'm okay. Do you forgive your son? Miss Glass asked pointedly. That's a tough question, I replied. I paused a moment, then added, I cannot say that I forgive him. When I look at that video now, I see a very controlled man, dressed in a blue suit and dark tie, a man hiding behind a glass, a man who will not forgive his son, who powerfully, desperately wants to disassociate himself from this thing. One can look hard for love in this video and still not find it. One can find a very great deal of distress. I remember feeling a deep, crushing sense of depression for the victims and for what was ahead for Jeff and us. Watching the video, one can detect a man whose life has been stung by shame, who wants the spotlights to go off so that he can return to the shadows, but it is hard to find a father racked by grief and care. It is this thing that he wants to be rid of. This thing, as I believe now, the horror of what my son had done. Clearly, it is not a very flattering view of myself, particularly when compared to the sweetness and sincerity of Sherry's appearance, the openness of her manner, the obvious care that flowed from her. Still, it was not a vision of myself that I could deny, and I never expected a worse one to be offered. But a worse one was offered very soon indeed, one that was much worse. Two days later, on September 12th, the Geraldo Rivera Show devoted its entire program to Jeff's case. In harrowing detail, Tracy Edwards recounted his escape from Jeff's apartment and Jeff's later arrest. In his version of events, my son emerged not only as a brutal killer, but as a psychologically sadistic one. According to Edwards, Jeff had threatened and terrorized him, telling him that he intended to eat his heart. Certain relatives of the victims appeared, heartbroken as could be expected, and mourned the death of their loved ones. They spoke with dignity about their loss and with justifiable anger at how Jeff had slipped through the hands of those governmental agencies that should have caught him. Two other guests shocked and appalled me, however. Pat Snyder, a former Ohio acquaintance who knew nothing of our family and had met Jeff no more than three times, each time very briefly, accused Sherry of being the epitome of the evil stepmother, which was as deep and hurtful a lie as one human being has ever told about another. Sherry, who had watched the show at her office, was stunned by Snyder's appearance particularly in light of the fact that she, Snyder, had called me from Charleston, South Carolina, on previous dates, begging to let her write a book about Jeff. But far worse than anything Pat said was the accusation of a man who refused to give his identity and who sat behind a screen while making the accusation. Nick claimed that he had maintained an extended homosexual relationship with Jeff. 
It had begun at the end of June 1985 and had continued for the next two months. According to Nick, Jeff had been a jealous lover, but not a violent one, and as the relationship had deepened, Jeff had finally revealed the darkest secret in his life, the fact that his father had sexually abused him. Only eleven days later, Nick, now out from behind a screen, dressed neatly in a white jacket and blue t-shirt, but otherwise in full disguise, with fake hair and mustache, repeated his appalling accusation to Phil Donahue in spite of the fact that I had provided a warning of this Nick Snyder act to Donahue prior to airtime. Jeff's first sexual experience, he said, was with his father. Jeff had continued to be sexually abused, Nick added, until the age of 16. My son immediately filed a legal affidavit denying that I had ever sexually molested or abused him. He also denied that he had ever met Nick. But Jeff's affidavit was of little comfort. It was a charge that could not be disproved, only lived with, along with the doubts it raised in the minds of others, both the world at large and the people who knew me. The accusation of child molestation was the one that hit hardest among the people who had known me all my life. At work, I imagined that people with whom I had worked for many years were suddenly overwhelmed with doubts about my character. Suddenly, I was no longer cast in the role of devoted and long-suffering father, but as a dreadful and perverse father, one who had sexually abused his eight-year-old son, a practice which had continued for years. Suddenly, in my mind, I was the accused, rather than the father of the accused, an agent in my son's crimes, perhaps their ultimate cause. Everywhere I could sense that change, sense the terrible doubt and suspicion that had gathered around me. Looks and glances that were probably entirely innocent now looked sinister to me, questioning and accusatory. A kind of paranoia gripped me. I wondered how people could believe such a terrible thing about me if they believed it. And that was part of my confusion, that I absolutely could not be sure what anyone thought about me anymore. I felt that I had lost my identity as a father and had assumed another one. And, terrible as it was, I had no way of proving that it was all a lie, that Nick was an imposter. Even Jeff's denials, which came immediately, could not change the atmosphere that had come to surround me. It was in that mood of accusation that I waited for Jeff's trial. With my own household reeling under the assault of intrusions from without and a terrible friction from within, I entered a suspended world where nothing at all seemed certain. As a boy, I had always felt oddly helpless. Now I felt beyond the help of anyone. Although in the months to come she would give much more, Sherry had already given all that could be expected of her. Because by nature she was far more sensitive than I, she had suffered far more than I had, even from the beginning, and even despite the fact that Jeff was not, at least technically, her son. Still, she had always treated Jeff as her own child, and it was very clear to me that she had sensed a good deal more of his youthful loneliness and isolation than I ever had. In addition, since the murders, she had felt more for the pain of the victims and their families than I had been able to feel. Still, despite Sherry's obvious suffering, I felt that I had no resources of my own to offer her, 
either emotionally or intellectually. To a degree far deeper than I could have known at the time, and far greater than I had ever expected either to understand or to admit, I was a strangely disassociated man, limited in my ability to respond with feeling to another's feeling, often confused by my own lack of responsiveness, and at times even baffled by what I vaguely recognized as numb or empty or vaguely wounded spaces in my own nature, spaces that, under certain circumstances, might well have generated acts I was still afraid to face. That'll, uh... Vaguely wounded spaces in my own nature, spaces that under certain circumstances might well have generated acts I was still afraid to face. What I'm supposed to say, man? What? What? Catherine Massey Book Club. We're all done next week, but I mean, see, this here, way back when it was nice warm weather in the spring, I said, I'm a little bit resistant to all this, you know, blaming Reb Eric saying he's a psychopath. I said, so what does it mean to be white? Dr. Bobby E. Wright, remember? Psychopathic racial personality and other essays like, man, man, how widespread is this in white culture? The dad, what, 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 what is you, what, man, almost sound like he's, I got to go hide in the lab. If I'm not hiding in the lab, I might have been chomping on somebody too, man, <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> come on, come on, uh, number is 605. Three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. What do it, uh, Doctor uh, Marimba Ani? She has an extensive section talking about the uh, the scientist in that white lab coat. Old Doctor Dahmer. Let's see, folks who dialed in, if y'all have thoughts, observations to share, line should be open. Proceed. Mandy Hurt. Fresh Princess. Yes, ma'am. The major thing that I picked up on was that his father conceded that he was a homosexual, child-molesting murderer, but a racist? Absolutely not. He's not racist at all. All those other things? Sure. And he's a cannibal, too? Not racist. Not racist in the least. He just needed bodies. That was my takeaway message. And I think that's part of the reason why he wrote the book to implicitly state that his son was not racist. Explicitly state. Sue did the same thing because she had in Columbine, like, well, where did all the Nazi stuff come from? You mean the whole time you were listening to German rock bands 
you never once questioned what the lyrics were or anything. You just let him rock out. But with Sue, probably so. She was self-absorbed, and it seems like Jeffrey Dahmer's father was also self-absorbed. So um, kind of two peas in the pod and excuse the behaviors of the children because, like I said last week, when your child gets arrested for child molestation, that's kind of like, it's beyond, oh, he has a problem with drinking, like, we can't help this person. So that's all. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, fresh princess. Uh, she said that may be one of the major reasons for writing this book. Old Jeff, he might have been a cannibal and a serial killer. Might have been, you know, rapist, child molester. Exposing, what do they call that? I forgot what they call that. You have an exposing yourself in public. Uh, wait, 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 wait. He was categorically not a racist. Didn't he eat all those? <laughs> He's not a racist. Didn't y'all live in all those racially? <laughs> he just needed bodies. We don't teach no racism around here. How many black friends you got? I'm that, that press conference over. Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Lines should be open. They lived in all those racially restricted regions. I mean, real talk. That would have just been, hey, we're going to do the easy ones. How many black friends you got, Lionel? How many black people been over to your place in West Ames? Hmm. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Other folks, commentary to share. Yeah, Gus, uh, victim from New Jersey. That's that's real interesting with the... uh... The, the caller just, just stated. Um, I, I didn't even, you know what, I didn't even really think that deep into it, but it's just, it's just interesting. So I'm just thinking, so in this society, you know, it's better to be classified as a pedophile, a rapist, but not a racist. It's like in this society, um, and also in this, in these books, you know, it's, you know, um, can we can we add obfuscating? You know, a little little uh, moo in there. <laughs> you know, just really just going out of their way to deny racism. It's you know it it it, it you know it baffles the mind because this is a man in all his mediocrity. He lives in a black area you know what i'm saying an impoverished um black area he can live anywhere else and was you know getting away with being you know the weird white guy on the block you know um you know i mean you know people you know was warned you know warning them to law enforcement about him and they they were you know, they were just basically being ignored. Um, so he had full knowledge that black people are worthless, you know, just like when um, he, uh, he he allegedly was in his grandmom's house and, oh, you know, Dad, I was just experimenting on, you know, a dead animal carcass. You know, metaphorically, 
black people were also as worthless as that animal carcass that he was telling his dad he was experimenting on. So he was even, you know, in his in his insanity and in his madness, he was still aware of the racial hierarchy and how worthless black people were and that he can, you know, get away with it for as long as he, you know, got away with it. Um, the father is kind of like going in and out. It's just amazing how white people can just, you know, he's kind of like schizophrenic in his analysis of himself. And, you know, and, it, and, and it's, you know, I don't think white society sees that as odd. Just like how you have white children or, you know, white young people, they can, you know, walk around and just, be, you know, wear clothes and gothic and paint their nails and walk around as witches and warlocks and nobody turns, looks, and, oh, that's kind of weird. But let a nigga, oh, I'm sorry, let a Negro walk in the neighborhood and it's suspicion, you know. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna call in tomorrow about workplace racism. Um, I think va- vacations are a part of that, but again, like I said, I, I experienced, you know, being on an island and having white people stare like, oh, you know, what are these what are these Negroes doing here in this swimming pool? Aren't they supposed to be serving us drinks? But um, yeah, so you know, you can you can just be weird, white, wow, and be considered as normal, you know. That's that's kind of the, that's the takeaway that I'm getting from this book. It's the the takeaway that I'm also getting from Sue Klebold's book. You know, you can you can just be, you know, flirt with insanity and still be seen as normal if you're white. I close. White always normal always. Um, let's make sure I didn't miss out with the father. Yeah, he's doing his own little kind of personal analysis of all of this. Like, I personally get a much, I get a much stronger sense of me personally. Did I have a role in this? Uh, some reflection, I think as he was saying, talking about Lionel Dahmer and him writing this way more so than in Sue's Klebold, Sue Klebold's book. It feels much more self-serving and dishonest uh, in her text, uh, substantially so, in fact. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, hand up to share, commentary. double check once I get our other emails out of the way let's see email number two okay hi Gus audience callers number one you often play the clip of Mr. Fuller talking about Jeffrey Dahmer 
personifying white supremacy. Now that we have studied Columbine and Lionel Dahmer's book, I understand what Mr. Fuller means. Jeffrey Dahmer is a celebrity to white people because he did the thing most of them dream about but hold back due to their refinement. 2. The interview with Stone Phillips. Chili, that's the one uh, that I started the broadcast with last week. Not only because of the casualness, but because of the lack of reaction to Lionel's revealing he dreamt of killing people. There's no reaction, repulsion, or fear. Treated as nothing. Killing people is not, yeah, big deal. Yeah. 3. Sherry, his wife, didn't run a mile. She married the father of a cannibalistic serial killer who also fantasized about killing people, yet didn't run a mile. How did she know he wasn't still dreaming about killing people, including her? Maybe she's dreaming about killing people too, so, you know, no big deal. Uh, number four, Lionel is living through Jeffrey. Jeffrey did what Lionel dreamed of doing. That's kind of what I was thinking when he ended that passage, you know, when he said, uh, I vaguely recognized as numb or empty or vaguely wounded spaces in my own nature. Spaces that under certain circumstances might well have generated acts. I was still afraid to fate. Like what? In Put him under surveillance. He's still alive. Man. Let's see. Five, Lionel passed his responsibilities to others, including his elderly mother, who was put through a lot. You know, him having Jeff, like, you know your child. I don't have children, but you know your child. He knows his child. He knows that. Yeah, Jeff is a child molester, man. He is a no-count, alcoholic, worthless, shiftless waste of white skin. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh. I'm going to go back to the lab. You know that. Why would you let him go stay with your grandma? Like, even when he's not, that's why he knew, like, man, God knows what he's got in this box. That's why he made such a big deal over it. Like, he's got a gun and all the rest of it. Why on earth with his grandma? Like, come on. Let's see. Uh, staying at his grandmother's. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Lionel was pretty much impotent as evidenced by him allowing Jeffrey to keep the box instead of opening it just like Tom and Sue and that essay yeah, like that, that is the adjective for Lionel and Jeffrey really impotent Woo. raping children impotent Six, staying at his grandmother's house did not provide the structure to help Jeffrey control his deviance. Sherry and grandma suspected that he was gay when the mannequin was found in his closet. Seven, I do believe Lionel is being more honest in this book than Sue Klebold. However, I'm not buying it completely. The family knew Jeffrey was deviant and dangerous. How could you not? Like, really? They found the gun under Jeffrey's bed and he was dissolving animals in chemicals. His scientist father searched for signs of Jeffrey's experiments, but Lionel convinced himself that Jeffrey wouldn't cross the line, even though he recognized Jeffrey had a darker side. Lionel, who also fantasized about killing people, is watching his son using chemicals to dissolve animals. That is willful ignorance. He says that about himself a lot of times in the book, that he was in denial about, you know, old Jeff, didn't want to believe. Eight, I wonder if Jeffrey Dahmer killed anyone in Germany. Hmm. 
His first killing was at the age of 18, and he spent two years in the Army, part of which was overseas. Is the idea that he stopped killing during this period. He was away from home in an unknown country where he is unknown. I'm sure he took advantage of that situation. I don't know. I don't know. Have they done any searches? Did any people go missing during that time period? They have any non-white people, vulnerable populations where he could have went and you know, been a predator for that period while he was there? I don't know. Number nine, uh, she says, weren't no UFO. Joyce was high. Now, it does seem that Joyce was for sure, like, super addict. No argument there. But I mean, hey, you know, official white people have been saying, hey, the UFOs are there. Take it serious. She could have been high and seen ET. Number 10, even when I thought of him as a man, a prisoner, a murderer, it seemed to me that my son was far away from me. He was far away in the distance that physically separated us. In his character and personality, in both these senses, he was where I wanted him safely, far, far away. More willful ignorance on Lionel's part. Does anyone know what Lionel means by for the darker side of my parenthood was still beyond my grasp? Now, I do not know what that means. I have said, didn't I say that word uh, darker or dark, whatever the variations of it are in the text a lot. Let's see, man, he uses that phrasing, uh, repeatedly in this book so in chapter 2 he says the subtleties of social life were beyond my grasp uh, he says in chapter 4 violence and sexual mutilation had thrust any hope for an ordinary life into a world that was utterly beyond his grasp and then for the specific phrase that she just cited uh, that's chapter or part two, right in the early part, uh, for the darker side of my parenthood was still beyond my grasp. That's in fact how the whole chapter seven ends, very last sentence. Um, and he had said previous to that, instead, when I thought of him, it was as a little boy, a lively little boy. Yeah, I'm not, what does that mean? The darker side of my parenthood. Even when I thought of him as a man, a prisoner, a murderer, it seemed to me that my son was very far away from me. Hmm. Is that maybe that's what it, he says? Okay, because that's the sentence before. So when he says he was also far away in his character and personality, which it seemed to me was no less obvious. In both these senses, he was where I wanted him, safely away, far far away for the darker side of my parenthood was still beyond my grasp okay that he does not want to be <clears throat> white people do not care about children and then to call it the darker side, you should call it the whiter side. Sorry about that, big part. Now, uh, 
in my view, I think that is getting to what I say all the time. He is not really vested in this. I think many folks have pointed that out just from his behavior and all this. He's always running off to the lab and not around just to state it so explicitly. I am not into all of this. Forget all this parenting stuff. You got all that Sherry Good deuces, deuces, deuces. He's first wife, same thing. Like, why even have the children? Because he is clearly I'm not vested in any of this. I don't even know how to respond. He talks about that. Like, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm just deuces. Back to the lab. Back to the lab. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just sit with my microscope. <sighs> I think that's just probably getting at a piece of it. Who even knows? But I mean, it, that that right there tells you <clears throat> one or two sentences. He wanted him safely away even that safely away like wow why would it be dangerous to be in proximity with your offspring and then far far away alrighty uh, let's see 12 Did the detective did not tell the grandmother what crime they suspected Jeffrey of as she seemed rather overwhelmed more evidence of the special treatment for parents of mass murderers that we learned of in Columbine and Absolute Madness. I bet she would have been treated harsher if she were non-white. Oh, especially murders were committed in this house? Oh, man. <laughs> you are fitting to get it if you are Jamal's grandma. I don't care if you're not. Get your walker and get the stepping. 13. Had Deputy Chief Dews told me my son had been murdered I might have had a sudden vision of him as a murder victim knowing Jeff as I did I would have been able to accept the possibility far more quickly his shyness his passivity his low self esteem all of these things made him fit the role of a victim far better than any other I might have imagined in a murder scenario like Tom and Sue Klebold, Lionel is imagining someone quite different to the son he actually raised. Jeffrey was a child molesting drunken thief who liked to dissolve animals in chemicals. Not shy or passive, certainly not a victim. I will say the impotent aspect, I do the, all the things that he said, it's just exactly where she and he both do agree. Now, Lionel say, my son's not a rapist. But he is a child. Oh, excuse me, he's not a racist. But he is a child rapist. You all would agree there. He's so impotent in everything that he said. He wouldn't be doing all this aggression against regular grown people. But I would go get a child. I would go drug somebody, slip a Mickey in their drink. And then, yeah, I can be manly then. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cowardly. We talked about that. Oh, ho, oh, oh. Cowardly, that's pretty cowardly, right? You raping children, that's cowardly. And you got to slip something in somebody's drink, male or female. That is extra cowardly and criminal. But man, thank you, Columbine. 14. What does a father do with such information? I mechanically return to the routine task I've been doing just before the call to my mother, editing analysis methods. Or silica. I focused on matters of chemical methodology. I compulsively returned to what remained stable and predictable in my life, the old refuge of the laboratory. The situation is abnormal, but so is that reaction. 
one that could only come from the father of Jeffrey Dahmer and Sue Klebold, who went to the hairdressers for the day after the Columbine massacre. Says she already made the appointment. That's what she said, you know. Gotta keep my appointment, keep my word. Uh, 15, for the next few hours, in, or excuse me, for the next few hours, my inner world took on a sinister atmosphere of a dark desperately guarded secret. It was not a feeling that was new to me in 1988 when Jeff had been arrested for child molestation. I'd kept it a secret. I'd kept it all. I'd kept all the other things I had learned after that. His arrest for indecent exposure, his homosexuality, his addiction to pornography, theft of the department store mannequin, turning the deepest part of it into a basement hiding place. No question about the victims, no concern for their families, nothing. I think someone said that before, like he could have stepped up when Boyle said, hey, come stay with me at the press conference. Like, I don't want to do it, but that's much. At least to the victims, uh, we think and pray of you, pray for you every day. You have my unending sympathies. We'll take no questions. Just try to get through this the best we can. Thank you. Didn't even do that. Nah, nah, nah. Going to the laboratory. Let's see. Uh, email number one. Now I can uh, finish chapter nine since we at least did that. Uh, number one from chapter nine. He writes, only one neighbor offered assistance. Nature of phone calls different from the nature of letters offers from people to use their home sympathy, understanding really something worse. The white collective rallying around them as victims is reminiscent of Klebold, isn't it, buddy? Number two single terrible aspect of his murders race race killer black victim even that you know most of his victims were non-white that's one I would even say makes it more explicit because some of those children that he raped no they were not classified as black but they were non-white when you include that like oh man so he's really not a racist he's really not out just abusing, taking advantage of non-white people. Mm. Mm. Uh, let's see. Uh, black victims, not been race murders, color of their skin hadn't mattered in the least, nothing to do with race, preying on young black men, they were the easiest. So how are you so sure that race didn't matter? You already stated you were in denial over his behaviors. You did not put it together that he was gay. Lionel, you are telling on yourself, exhibiting the typical deceptive behavior of a suspected racist. Are you worried that people will label you a racist having raised one? That was what Sue Klebold seemed to be worried about. It's as if you are more upset about him being a racist as opposed to him being just a murdering pedophile psychopath. His protestations are reminiscent of Klebold. Mm -hmm. Sympathetic letters, United States and several foreign countries. Very reminiscent of Klebold's book mostly sympathy from other suspected racists. Yep. Fall of 1991. The world know that there had been another Jeff. Resurrect that boyhood. Talking about her son's early childhood was also a large part of Klebold's book. Indeed. Even that term, resurrect. Are we talking about Jeffrey Dahmer or white Jesus? Or it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Eat the body of Christ, right? It's got the little cannibalism aspect there too. Number five, Tracy Edwards, Pat Snyder, former Ohio acquaintance, let her write a book about Jeff. Sat behind a screen, Nick. 
a homosexual relationship with Jeff, Jeff's first sexual experience was with his father. Tracy Edwards, black male who escaped Dahmer, pleaded guilty to throwing a man off a bridge to his death in 1991, spent one year in jail. Yikes, that is crazy. Uh, six. At, oh, oh, oh. Nope, stop. Didn't quite get there, but that bang will be important for next week. Okay, got those in. Uh, let's see. Let me double check, make sure we didn't miss any of the folks who dialed in. Uh, let's see. Lauren should be with us as well. I am. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I noticed uh, the same parts everyone else noticed. Um, It said within days after Jeff's arrest, a single terrible aspect of his murders became obvious, the element of race. From the beginning, it had been clear that almost all of Jeff's victims had been black, and this fact had made a great many people see him as a race killer, not racist, but race killer, someone who had purposely chosen black victims. Of all the charges that had been made against Jeff, this seemed to me to be the only one that absolutely was not true. My son had done terrible things, although at that time I didn't know just how terrible some of them had been, but his murders had not been racial murders. He had wanted bodies, muscular male bodies. For me, it was as simple as that. The color of their skin hadn't mattered to him in the least. There were many people who simply didn't believe this, however. They saw the faces of Jeff's victims, the fact that most of them were black, and drew their own conclusions. It was a conclusion that attracted a large number of people. I don't think so. I don't hear a lot of people talking about Jeffrey Dahmer being a racist. Even some celebrities, but it wasn't an idea I could accept. True, there were many, many things that I didn't know and had never known about Jeff, but I did know that he was insane. I had glimpsed that insanity, and I knew that his crimes had had nothing to do with race, but everything to do with madness. He had preyed upon young black men merely because they had been the easiest to prey upon. Many of them had been poor, and so they had needed the paltry $50 he had offered them. That made me think of the bio strangler. Others had simply been available in the neighborhood, and he had taken advantage of the sheer convenience of having them near at hand. I saw Jeff's murders in precisely those terms, analytically rather than emotionally. Now, that was a long part to read, but I think what he's saying there at the end, I think he might be implying that people who think that Jeffrey Dahmer is a racist are just being emotional and, you know, instead of being analytical. But he just laid it out, you know, why he would be killing. And he said, um, you know, someone who had purposely chosen black victims that, yeah, he said they were the easiest to prey upon. And I think that's true, you know, and um, let me see when the lady interviewing him, Miss Glass, um, he said, when I disassociate from my, myself from this thing, I'm okay. She asked, do you forgive your son? He goes, that's a tough question. I replied, I paused for a moment and then added, I cannot say that I forgive him. That right there, it made me think of Dr. Welting for a second. Um, And it was another part at the end uh, of the session. He, I think 
um, Lionel is a lot like, you know what? I should say it the other way. I think Jeffrey Dahmer is a lot like Lionel Dahmer. Now, I don't have any evidence that Lionel went around killing people, but I think he probably did want to. And it said, still, despite Sherry's obvious suffering, I I felt that I had no resources of my own to offer her, either emotionally or intellectually, to a degree far deeper than I could have known at that time and far greater than I had ever expected either to understand or to admit I was a strangely disassociated man, limited in my ability to respond with feeling to another's feeling. That He's just saying he, he can't feel what other people are feeling. Often confused by my own lack of responsiveness and at times even baffled by what I vaguely recognize as numb or empty or vaguely wounded spaces in my own nature, spaces that under circumstances under certain circumstances might well have generated acts that I was still afraid to face. That right there, I think that's really important. I think um, he and his son are a lot alike, and that's all I have. I agree. And uh, he says that. I think they, in the documentary that just um, came out a couple of weeks ago, that was one of the big, like, if you look at some of the articles that they have online talking about it and, you know, takeaways, what did you hear? Because that's a part of how they uh, market it is that it's got these unreleased uh, audio conversations between Lionel and Jeffrey. And one of the big ones is that um, Lionel Dahmer said, oh, we're, we're a lot alike. We're very similar. Uh, them saying that now I play we heard quite a bit you know today uh, we got to hear from Ronald Flowers and all that but it's right in that three-part series where he makes that apparently in the book and at many times these comparisons between he and old Jeff so yeah I think spot on totally uh, the whole way through uh, and even that thinking about killing people because we heard that one before any hoodles uh, we will wrap all this up here next week uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see. Disgruntled that I didn't, didn't get to uh, do my notes from the second audio segment. But you all, great comments. I super agree with uh, the racist. Seems like that was so important. And even Lauren's point where she came back and readdressed it because I, I agree completely that he is because that's so common with white people that they will say you negras you know you little children you're so sensitive and you get your feelings hurt and you just get all wound up and emotional like the little children that you are and i could see how you would think that this is racism but that's not what it is at all i'm scientific see i'm in dr Dahmer. see i'm scientific again me us attempted counter-racist scientists why I said hey one of those children that he was raping not classified as black classified as non-white that's super when you got enforcement officers who come and see this and they do the same thing when it's Tamir Rice they see him and they think this is an adult and that they're just having some consensual sodomy as opposed to white man 
raping non-white child. Yeah, I think that is totally what analytical mind, pecan brain though I may have, but I think that's white supremacy racism. Yes, absolutely. That's not. I think if that even right there, if that had been a white 14 year old, things would have stopped right there. Anywho, uh, let's see, make sure didn't miss anything else. Mm-mm-mm. The portion where they talk about the sympathetic letter. Oh, and he got letters from other parents from children who had gone astray. Like, are you serious? What in the hell was the Sue Klebold club already put together by this time period? Like what in the Christ? Uh, I would suspect that's probably a lot of white uh, parents too doing these uh, letters. And I even double checked one. I can correct myself. I did not find not one time Sue Klebold talking about feeling embarrassed as a result of what Dill did. She does, however, though, say that she was full of shame about the actions. So the shame aspect there, guilt, eh, embarrassed, definitely not. But in my view, it is a major, majorly different tone between the two. The other, Lionel says that one of his co-workers told him, for the grace of God, my white brother, could be, you know, could be me. Someone told Sue the exact same line. Like, what the... It doesn't matter what the circumstances. If you are white, you are white. You are on the team. We got your back. White sister, white brother. We got son blew up the school. Hey, hey. Son ate up about 15 people in the neighborhood. Hey, hey, hey. White means we got you. Come on, brother. We got a roast beef sandwich for you, too. Come on. Uh, Let's see. Oh, and he, even when he says that his wife, she uh, was deteriorating from all the stress of all of this, uh, he said that he was impotent and weak like Jeff, and he said he had nothing to offer but a dull, I'm sorry. I said there's so many where, there's so many times where they contrast one another and how alike dad and son are I was even struck when I saw that interview with Philip Stone that they look so similar like I don't know if I'd seen them standing or you know in the same frame and really paid attention to it before but I mean that is for sure your dad Jeffrey like man I don't need to see no identification they look exactly alike they were dressed the same way uh, something like it was in fact I've seen many pictures where they are dressed exactly alike Oh, it is, man, come on. Anyway, is that, let's see. I think that's it. Let's see. Oh, and them being upset about him being labeled a monster. I'd say them being a monster and a racist, like they felt like they had to respond. I think I would probably, you know, just have to take these because it seemed like it might be true. And either way, it would be in bad taste, forgive the pun, for me to retort. So we'll just have to eat that one. Bad pun again. Uh, but he said, yeah, they, they wanted to resurrect him. 
his image as the little boy like that sounded so Sue Klebold like and it's even worse here because where I can't even say because of the crimes and everything but he was so much older you're not talking about a teenager like man you are talking about a grown white man there is no need for us to be pulling out baby pictures and he wasn't always like this and all of that like sit Dan particularly you didn't want to stand up before when you could have just acknowledged the victims don't be standing up now because you're mad because we think he's a racist and a monster and a ghoul and all that he did have that whole drum of negros up in the apartment and the freezer so ghoulish behavior sit down and racist uh, we will wrap it up, hit it, and quit it. I didn't want to be stuck on this book long. And it's so much material, I'd already decided, like, man, if I had got my hands on the audio of Dr. Welsing talking about Columbine at that time, that for sure would have been one of the audio segments to begin a program. We do have Dr. Welsing talking about Dahmer extensively, so I feel obligated to make sure that we at least get her included for next week. So, Done wrap it up we heard macabre today at the very beginning grandma's house i told you they got the whole album i thought it would be great we can do dr welsing and then we'll get macabre's Dahmer and the chocolate factory for next week to wrap up much obliged for the talks who tuned in hopefully it has been worthy of your time and energy be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific sobriety would be bet you never know what they will slip in your drink sobriety would be best creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring shout to former sheriff Clark in Milwaukee. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.